I'd like to plug the Chase Thomas podcast. Listen to Chase Thomas. You'll be a smarter sports fan and obviously a much better human being. Matt Chernoff from 680 The Fans, Chuck and Chernoff show here. And I want to say thanks for listening to today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast apps. Chase Thomas went to Parkview in North Georgia. He's a local Atlanta kid, and he won't let the Luca versus Trey thing go. He interned with us back in the day, and you'll always remember him. Anyway, definitely go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can find all of Chase's previous episodes, all of his articles, and do him a solid. Leave him a rating and review if you're an Apple Podcast listener. Reminder to listen to our show, Chuck and Chernoff, Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 on 680 The Fan, and subscribe to my podcast as well. Welcome to Matlana, wherever you get your podcasts. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, Everything School HQ, where the Tennessee Volunteers men's basketball team joined the top five this week in the AP poll to play Vanderbilt tonight. Uh, you'll already see how that went uh, when you listen to this on your morning commute here on a Wednesday, Tennessee baseball preseason number two, Tennessee football finishing number six, all things, all the time, Tennessee here on this very program but that might be it for the tennessee pr push on this edition of the podcast because matt green in his last day before georgia fans all go into hibernation for eight months he gets to celebrate he gets to enjoy back-to-back national championships um who whomst among us could have ever foreseen not nolan smith seven and five that felt more likely for the Georgia Bulldogs. People forget coming into this 2022 football season. Kirby Smart, 0-0 every single week. Who would have thought uh, week in, week out? Not the, the, the amazing underdog story. Not the underfrogs. The underdogs with an A-W-G. Matt Green, your football team, back-to-back national titles. How are you feeling? It's a, it's a great time to be a Georgia Bulldog fan, sir. Back-to-back national titles. I just really uh, I can't, can't explain this feeling. I think Georgia fans, more than, more than just about any other fan base, they were, they were a very tortured bunch of, of being so close for so long and, and not being able to get it done. Uh, I feel like we, we, uh, we earned this. As, as, as one famous song put it, I paid my dues time after time. What is it? It was the next slide. I, I, no I served I my sentence. I served my sentence, but committed no crime. That's, that's what it felt like to be a Georgia fans. But ultimately, we are the champions now. And uh, it's just, it's beautiful, man. Kirby Smart, like you said, this is what you're focusing on for some reason is <laughs> the, the Georgia fans or the Georgia players saying we were doubted and, and all that. And, it's not a rags to riches story. Everyone know Georgia was favored versus TCU. This isn't a Cinderella story, but the fact remains, Georgia was doubted for a team that that was pre uh, was the defending national champions. Like lots of times, it's just kind of the de facto. Oh yeah, they're number one again next year. Like we 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 forget so quickly because Georgia just came out week one and absolutely dominated, and it was like, oh shit, they're they're going to be just as good as they were last year, but. The, the whole offseason, there was a lot more talk of 15 guys going to the draft, like 
they're going to take a step back defensively. Like I mean, you, you that LSU team that they broke their record went from fourteen and zero or fifteen and zero to a like what seven and five season or so the next year um, in twenty twenty. Or I'm not even sure what they finished, but it was a mediocre season um, LSU had after winning a championship. It's like there was a lot, and also the talk of you know this is Saban's revenge tour, Nick Saban's most talented team of all time, like. Georgia was definitely not the favorite. They're preseason number three, third best odds to win it. But it's like, it's this college football. Like, it's not a three out of 120. It's three out of like, you know, five or six. Like, there there really aren't that many true contenders year in and year out. Like, some people kind of argue that there's even five or six teams some years, you know. So, Georgia, in terms of being a reigning national champion, like, you look at the, the preseason SEC predictions, like, even like the first team all SEC, I think Alabama had like eight, ten guys on first team all SEC. Like there was a lot more hype about Alabama coming into the year, and just this kind of, you know, it, that, that's the thing is what the Georgia standard is. It's not everyone doubted we, they'd be really good this year. It's they doubted they win a national championship, and that's Georgia's only goal is win a national championship. And there were there's there's people that were doubting them, man. And it's also it's it's sports talk, like everyone's always gonna say that it's us against the world or everything like Ohio State was saying us against the world and all that it's like you're Ohio State like you're one of the powerhouses in this sport like you're you got in without winning your conference it's not really you against the world but in terms of like the the fact like it's it's much more than Bryce Young's Heisman speech right like oh rags to riches I was the quarterback at at one of the best high school programs in the country five star go to Alabama and, and and uh, win the Heisman, yeah, that's pretty much on on par for the course for what you were supposed to be. But uh, th- this Georgia team, like, we're quick to forget because of how good they were so early on. But there was, I don't think anyone believed they would be this good this year. I mean, there's people saying Stetson Bennett should have gone pro or just gave it up because there's no way his 2022 could be better than 2021. For because for some reason he's he's the only guy that's that experience is not going to make better. Like it's. It's uh you, you saw how much it sets and improved from 2020 to 2021 and then he got even better in 2022. Well, I think part of it was just the odds of him repeating because we've only seen it Saban only did it once and that was in the pre-CFP era and it was like, "Hey, you went out on a great note." Like you're just you you were running the risk of like ending on a sour note when you're now I think unquestionably but, the but best Leiner, quarterback. Matt Liner returns for his senior year. It's like we're running it back. We're winning a national championship again. It's like, why would it be different for Stetson Bennett? Well, I think the difference is Matt Liner could have gone in the first round and he chose to come back. And it was like, oh, this is kind of interesting that he's coming back to run it back. And you just, you, like, he, uh, the pedigree is just different. Uh, with Stetson, you were a folk hero and you may not leave a folk hero if you come back um, and it goes awry and you get benched or things go backwards guess- or whatever. But Liner they were also had, their over under was what eleven and a half uh, before the year we talked about. I think on the pod in our preseason picks of like basically are they going to go undefeated or are they going to go eleven and one worst case scenario, and they come in at number three in the AP poll which he cited. The teams in front of them, Bama. It's funny, like uh, Richard Johnson of Split Zone Duo made this point today that I thought was uh, a poignant one, which was that. This game with the the champions, like it's a game of inches. Basically, it's a game of like just one little moment can just completely shift who wins the title or how things go for some of the the select few. Like if you don't get the all time worst big moment kick from Ohio State there, like not even close. 
Ohio State's the national champion right now. We have a completely different conversation about Ohio State. It's if, also a 50-yard field goal. Well, so it wasn't even close, Matt. Like, it went no, far no, left. True. Like, that's what I'm saying. It wasn't even blocked or anything. It just was just one of the worst big moment kicks we'll ever see in the sport. What we're also looking at is Bama. Like, if Bama doesn't... Uh, if that pass interference call that saves the drive that Tennessee ends up scoring on uh, in Knoxville, where Tennessee, uh, they have a, I don't know if it was McKinstry or who it was who returned it in the end zone 60 yards back, but pass interference oh, kind of yeah, bails out Tennessee. Inside, like inside the five or yeah. something? They lose that game if that's not, they don't throw a late pass interference call there. And then obviously the Chase McGrath knuckleball field goal, where if you kick that 100 times, he makes that four of 100. And Tennessee probably doesn't win in overtime. And then Bama gets in uh, and we get Bama and George in the SEC title game. And who knows how that goes? Um, it's just funny that these things just come down to one or two moments that just completely flip. So when people kill Georgia for uh, the Marvin Harrison injury or Jameis Williams last year, I'm like, that's just how this sport goes. Is It's just for the big dogs, for lack of a better word, you need a little bit of luck and you need a little bit of those one or two things to go your way. And there were one or two things that needed to go Bama's way to win the national title. There were one or two things that need to go Ohio State's way to win the national title. And there were one or two things that needed to go Georgia's way to repeat as national champion sh- champions. I think all three could make the case that they could easily win. The, they could be considered the best team in college football this year, um, like you said. But Georgia did it. And I, I don't like citing that kind of stuff when it comes to teams actually winning because they did what they had to do in front of them that's they can only control what they can control and that's how sports goes and that's how this sport specifically goes where it's just amazing that one or two moments or one or two kicks or one or two plays can ultimately determine whether or not you win a national title or not but that's ultimately what happened um before georgia thrashed tcu without a doubt and it's like you're gonna you're gonna get zero sympathy from the uga fan base about anything like that like you just go back to to 2002 like when terrence edwards dropped a wide open pass against florida and and georgia was a one loss team that like that close to going undefeated or like 2007 with stafford and no sean it's like by the by the time the, the season was ending like that may have been the best team in college football even the aaron murray in 2012 the Devonte Smith, uh, second and 26 in 2017. It's like, or just the fact that a, a team benched their starting quarterback in the national championship game and you lost that game somehow. Like there's just, uh, of all like the crazy things that just have to go right, like Georgia's always been on the the opposite side of that. They've been on the, they've, they've been on the losing end more times than not of just like, something has to bounce a certain way and it, and it bounces the opposite way. So yeah, it, you, you got to recruit better. You know, you got to have, if, if you're, if your entire success of your team is built on two wide receivers, then, you know, you, you need to get three or four wide receivers. Like that's, that's just the bottom line. It's always been, and you look at last year too, like, like Adam Anderson, obviously wasn't an injury. He was just a, a bad person. <laughs> Allegedly, uh, he was Georgia's best pass rusher. And you, your second half of your season, you played without your best pass rusher. 90% of the season, you played without a guy who looks like an elite NFL wide receiver as a, as a rookie in George Pickens. And then this year, to lose Nolan Smith, your best pass rusher, again, play most of, like 90% of your season without your best wide receiver in A.D. Mitchell. Luckily, both of them did come back for the end of the season. So that's, that's kind of almost more important. But it's Georgia was overcoming adversity just, just like anybody else. So it's like, yeah... 
those losing those playmaker wide receivers definitely hurt those teams. It's like you, you got to overcome it, and, and you're not going to get any sympathy uh, for a second from any Georgia fan. Uh, will you apologize to me for uh, getting on my case about saying the national championship happened uh, a week ago and that this game was not worth any of our times if we're not a Georgia fan uh, coming into this one? Where, what did I say in this podcast? I said this was going to be a blowout. I picked, what, 52-14 or 24 or something? I think it was 42-14, I think yeah. was your score. Yeah. And you were like, whoa, couldn't do it. I didn't see yeah. a 60-burger coming out of this one. No. Like 65-7. <laughs> that we need to talk about because people cited the Notre Dame-Bama game and um, some other past national championship lopsided games. But this was a different level of lopsided where 65-7, like the one thing that's going to help the Big 12, because I was thinking about this after, um, like how the committee would view the Big 12 after a game like this in the national championship. And I think if we were staying at four, the Big 12 – uh, is in some trouble when it comes to uh, needing a break from the committee to put them in for if they have a one loss champ or something and then you have a two loss SEC team they're out now like See, that is, I disagree I mean TCU mm. won a game like that's they they actually won they beat the Big Ten champion so if anything the Big Ten is the conference that should be indicted here like they they lost both of these games and they had two teams that were like questionable like had questionable schedules all season like obviously those are both great games. Michigan, Ohio state, both barely lost both of those games. But I mean, you shouldn't, you shouldn't like have react for the entire conference just because Georgia is way better than TCU. It's like TCU. That's one thing. Like, I don't understand how TCU is getting like a, though they should have never been there in the first place type narrative after this game. It's like they won. They won a game in the college football. Like there's like six or seven programs in the country that have actually won a college football playoff game. Like that's a very exclusive list. And TCU is actually beat. Michigan has, has never won a playoff game. You know, like they're 0-2. Ohio State, they've won back in uh, 2014. Oh, and then I guess Fields got one. But Ohio State has more losses than wins in the college football playoff as well. So, you know, TCU ran up against, like, I, I definitely, I will, I will agree with you that we saw the national champion, the true national championship game in the Peach Bowl. Like, I'll, I'll agree that Ohio State is the second best team in the country, and I don't want to spoil our final top 10 that we're going to give. But, like, Ohio State, like, I, I will concede that point. But, like, at the end of the day, TCU earned the opportunity to be on the on the national championship stage with Georgia. Georgia just was a, a whole lot better. And that was the other thing about Georgia versus Ohio State. It was Ohio State gave Georgia a lot of problems. They were a bad matchup. But Georgia played one of their weaker games. Like it, they did they still did play well. Like had over like 500 yards, scored 42 points, but it was they they didn't look like crisp and, all, and especially defensively. And a lot of that that credit goes to Ohio State, but in this TCU game, like Georgia, like this is the team we saw play most of the year. Like this is the team that came out against Tennessee. This is the team that came out against Oregon. Like Tennessee, I mean, they did call the dogs off and I think Tennessee is a much better team. And obviously that was a two touchdown win at the end of the day. Uh, it is not nearly the beat down that this, uh, TCU game was, but also I sent you the three photos. You doubted me on the three open bombs that they missed, <laughs> that they had not missed all season, Matt Green. You, but they, you pushed... they didn't hit them. You know, Well, That's... what I'm saying is again, it's a game of inches in the sport where it's just, three plays that i mean if you're playing that you make those throws in the peach bowl in the dome 
in a cover in a roof with the different term. I'm saying he probably hits at least two of those. Also, then, who knew SoFi was an indoor stadium that that wasn't closed, so it could rain in there. That was kind of yeah. I didn't really know that either, and it seemed like it only was hitting the TCU fans, which was just adding insult to injury. <laughs> I mean, pour one out for those guys, like. I, I'm I'm trying to like imagine me being a TCU fan. Like I don't think I would have gone. I don't think I would have even if I'm like I don't think I'll ever see a TCU national title game in my lifetime again. That's there was just no is. part of me that I'm like I'm dropping three grand when we're <laughs> down twelve and a half. Like it's just I just don't see it. Like I, I and it sucks. But this sport's not forgiving in that way. Where I'm like this was the ultimate stars matter game. Where I I think I sent you. Um, Jordan Reed of ESPN who tweeted out the Jalen Carter snaps, like three snaps that just stood out. And you're watching the game. It's just, he's getting double teamed. Tennessee tried to do the same thing and he's just breaking through. And you're like, what are you doing? What is the point of any of this? Like the trenches. And that's what people miss when they talk about Georgia. Cause one of the things my brother and certain family members throw out was Stetson and Lad McConkey, um, where it's like, Oh, these aren't the heralded guys. Like Georgia's doing this with, uh the they do like the the walk it's like well Stetson was a three-star when he came back from Juco and he was a, obviously a different player but it's also it helps when you have an incubator around him with five-star running backs four-star running backs five-star receivers four-star receivers five-star tight ends everywhere and then the trenches which is the most important part of the sport have the Jalen Carters the Jordan Davises of the world that just absolutely wreck things for the three stars of the world at tcu where it's like they have no answer they didn't have guys they just See, don't but i think that is i think that i think both points are true though georgia has a, a bunch of five stars that are really good players but that should honestly scare people more than anything is that the three stars that georgia gets are almost always their best players like you look hmm. at an eric stokes you look at a jordan davis like an ad mitchell like Obviously, they've had you know Trayvon Walkers and, and Nicobe Deans that have the Keely Ringos that have all been five stars and been stud players, but like they seem to hit at, on their three stars even more so than the five stars, and that's and that's what's kind of just it's scary if you're if you're a, a, an opponent of of Georgia, like because you look at because that's what the kind of point I've made about Stetson, like Stetson is great, but I mean I. I I struggle to even talk about Stetson because it's like, I don't know what Stetson's limitations are. You know what I mean? Like, Anthony, he's better than Anthony Richardson and Will Levis, as far as I'm concerned. And when the NFL play, people are like, oh, this is why, like, if I had to, a child ask me, well, why, why can't Stetson Bennett play foot quarterback in the NFL? I, I wouldn't know how to answer it. Well, he's, he's not really tall. Like, he, you know, he's not really what the, what the NFL guys want. He's not like a big, it's like, well, this guy, Russell Wilson's not tall. Bryce Young's not tall. Kyler Murray's not tall. I was like, well, that's true. I, you know, I don't really, I, I can't tell you exactly why he can't play in the NFL. It's like, because we all decided this guy wasn't good like four years ago. So we're just going to, we're just going to hold on to that. Like it, he's also older. Like mo there's not a good track record for these older quarterbacks. Um, but but he's, you look at the quarterbacks in the NFL, like Trace McSorley was getting an NFL game like a week ago. Like, uh, Taylor Heineke's been starting for like a couple years. Like Skylar Thompson got to start this past week. Like the Stetson Dolphins. Bennett is definitely a guy that's worthy of being on an NFL roster. And and you look at some guys that get reps in games, like like Davis Mills. Like he's not a good player. Like there's a there's a lot of and, and Richard LeCount actually said he's the supposedly Richard LeCount is the reason why Stetson got an offer. Uh, he he told hmm. Kirby Smart that Davis Mills might be the best player in the best quarterback in the country. 
but Stetson Bennett is the best quarterback in 3A or whatever classification they were in because that was they were coming out the same year. But I don't know. Like like if you look at Georgia's team, I think that the the five star narrative gets kind of overblown. Like who's the five star receiver on the current roster? Like I don't think there's a five star receiver that they've landed. Like a lot of four star players. Like wait who like for Georgia. Rose- for Georgia, like Arian Rosemary Smith. Jack Saint's a, f- Rose, a five-star. I don't think either of them are five-stars. Rosemary Jack Saint or Arian Smith. But, I mean, they're, like, top 50 players. Like, they're both big time. Like, A.D. Mitchell was, like, a three-star. Like, McConkie's a Pickens? Five. Pickens was five. Pickens was definitely a five-star. But he also, like, hardly played. He sets and hardly got Pickens as a, as, as a starter. And you look at the tight end room is super elite. But, like, Kendall Milton was an elite five-star running back. but Or, like, borderline four-star, five-star. But he was... I mean, he hasn't really played like like a five star at the college level. Like Kenny McIntosh is like a top, I don't know, I think like two hundred player coming out, like a solid four star coming. But like you're not seeing like these aren't like Najee Harris coming out of high school, like the the Derrick Henry's coming out of high school. Like Georgia doesn't under with Stetson Bennett as the quarterback. Like I think people just kind of expect a narrative. Like this isn't Jake Fromm out here like leaning on the run game, having two one. Two 1,000 yard rushers, and two of Jake Fromm's three seasons as a starter, he had two 1,000 yard rushers on his team. Like, Stetson never had a 1,000 yard rusher on his team. Like, he had a couple guys, and I think Kenny McIntosh is that elite talent. I think he easily could if Georgia spread it around differently. But it's, he, he's like 800 yard, something yards. Like, James Cook and Zamir White last year, like, they're good players. Those guys aren't like superstars or anything. So I think that gets kind of overblown too. Georgia's just like, just very good at like every single position and instead in that the quarterback position included I think honestly like the people that were outraged about this guy finishing fourth in the Heisman if you gave him a couple like four or five more garbage time touchdowns in the regular season this guy probably would have won the Heisman and then what he did in the playoff he would have earned it like he would have shown that he deserved it honestly like he if you look back at like you were kind of saying when Hinden Hooker should should be a finalist because he like if you're telling the story of like the 2022 season like what he did was so great for Tennessee and everything like you're telling the story of the 2022 season Stetson Bennett is kind of it you know like Caleb Williams yeah he's good like put up great stats I think he's a better player better prospect than Stetson Bennett but like this guy's 27 touchdowns, uh, throwing 10 on the ground. Like he's a unique, he's a dynamic dual threat. Like, man, it's it's incredible what Stetson Bennett's lasting legacy. And I'll be on, I'll be honest. I was on the record after the 2020 season was over. JT Daniels solidified himself as a starter. I know I had a conversation with my brother where he said I never want to see Stetson Bennett take another ne- meaningful snap again for Georgia. So I was a naysayer. I, I de- and what he was in 2020, I think it was like eight touchdowns, six picks. He was not a good player. But it's like everyone just focused. Oh, he was former walk-on, wasn't good in 2020. This guy sucks, and he just he turned into a really good college quarterback. And I think you got to make the. I I think I was I was. I've been um, swayed. I think he is Georgia's best quarterback of all time. I think it's a. I think it's a, I I think think it's a contest. I think it's definitely a contest because his. He lost his one game in the last two years, Matt. His supporting cast is huge, though. Like that's a big factor of of his success. And like if Aaron Murray had that success, but had I think that you gave team, Jake Fromm this this group or a lot of those Georgia. Like I don't think they have that dog in them. They they don't have Stetson has, just when he gets hit in the face, he just. And this is something that Eric Ainge 
the one part of it that he did tap into that I think what is accurate when it comes to Stetson, he obviously framed it incorrectly, and I didn't like what he <laughs> tweeted about him. But Stetson's not a punk, but he is a he has the Baker Mayfield mental makeup, right? Yeah. Like we can admit, like he did the phone call thing after he ran in on Tennessee for when they were calling him. Like he has that in him like he has did the mic drop right like he has that in him so let's not pretend he's not like this finger guns and all right like he's not a good old boy where he's like i'm just humble and happy to be here and i just love the team it's like no stetson has a little bit of he's not cocky but he's confident like he is a very confident gunslinger like hey man uh you can't stop me like i can run it in like those run where he's just untouched and he's just jogging in uh, for these touchdown runs, you're just like it, it's it's humiliating for other teams because he's just he's so at ease and it should not. It, Georgia did such a great job and Todd Monken did such a great job of making it look so easy for him all year long that I think we undervalue what Stetson is as a quarterback. And like one of the things I think about, and it's not his fault. It's like the pressure stuff. Like he had so many clean pocket throws against TCU that TCU obviously sending three and he just which is never a good idea against this Georgia team. But you look at it, the one thing that people discount, he's so good on deep balls. Like he's so good even when he's pressured. So he had eight attempts of deep uh, 20 plus yards. Uh, he had a 96 passer grade, three TDs on eight attempts deep, Matt Green. He averaged 18, point yard, uh, 18 yards per attempt there, 144 yards on balls that traveled 20 plus yards in the air. I mean, he was worse on the short stuff. He, he was two of five on the zero to nine yard throws. Um, that's where his gr- bad grades were. His bad grades were close to the line of scrimmage where he killed people was the intermediate 10 to 19 yards in the deep balls. Like Stetson is just, he's a gunslinger, but he's also just, he doesn't make the mistakes that you need. But you the thing that opened this Georgia team up significantly was I'll hit you deep over the right. I'll hit you deep over the middle. And then I'll hit... Brock Bowers 10 yards over the middle too and we're just you're not going to have an answer for it like you're not going to be able to stop it and I think Stetson deserves a lot of credit for how much of a downfield assassin he was this year and what he became where it's like the dude's not a game manager and he deserves credit for a pretty deep ball and just scaring the bejesus out of these teams because you give him that opportunity he's going to kill you on the deep balls and that was that was true again against TCU. And TCU, no deep balls. Like, I think they have, like, one big play total. Just the one busted coverage. Yeah, yeah. that was it. That yeah, was I, it. Think that was, I think that play was, like, 60 yards. And I think mm-hmm. TCU ended up with, what, like, 168 yards on the whole game? Like, mm. just <laughs> 188 yards uh, in this whole game. But, yeah. And, and I think a lot is made of, like we, we said, of the supporting cast. Like, Brock Bowers is just super elite. And I think you could make a case, like, last year, like, Stetson was maybe the the 15th, 20th best player on the team or so, you know, like with just if you're giving a guy a numerical rating on how good he is at his position with just all of the studs you had on defense and and even the on the offensive side of the ball, too. But like you actually look at this year and he's actually one of Georgia's best players like Brock Bowers is still the best player on this defense or on this offense. But like Stetson, a lot was put on Stetson, like the only team like we've talked about it a few times on here, the only team that had more attempts than Georgia in the pass attempts in Georgia this year was an air raid offense in Mississippi State. So Georgia was putting a lot on the arm of Stetson Bennett this year. And it was still kind of this narrative, oh, you know, I, I heard multiple people say, you know, Georgia 
Kirby's not going to let Stetson lose the national championship for him. Like he's as long as he keeps Stetson from like losing this game, it's like at some point are we not just going to acknowledge like this guy is winning games for Georgia. Like he's actually a really good quarterback and man, just everything Georgia was doing against TCU was working. And it was just, uh, it was fun to watch. Like no, like, no one ever said anything about Joe Burrow, like his supporting cast, right? It was just, Joe Burrow's incredible. He's throwing to the two best receivers in the NFL right now, like two years out of college. Like those guys are like literally the two best in the league. And he had a first round pick at, at, wide, at running back as well. It's like, no one ever said anything about, yeah, but his supporting cast. And I'm not saying Stetson's uh, I think close that's revisionist his- history. I think they were. They were saying, like, Jamar Chase and uh, what's the running back's name who went first round? This man to- was the number one pick of the draft. It was like Joe Burrow was the greatest college player of all time. Like, that was well, how he that- was talked about. Well, they said he had the best college. They LSU's offense had the collective best collection of talent and seasons of all time i think that's not really fair i think uh, you're doing a little bit of revisionist history uh with joe burrow and that team it was a collection we talked about tell lsu was 2019 like the super just gargantuan but there was never unit. a question about joe burrow it's like yeah but look how good supporting cast is like are we sure well, he's, he's going like number one this, overall are we sure he's this good like his supporting cast is great there was never a question for a second about joe if joe burrow was legit or not and it's right. like stetson doesn't have close to the supporting cast and you're talking about yeah maybe he deserves to go to the nfl i don't know maybe he should be drafted maybe he picked up he's on getting free. drafted let's just go it's ahead and like, end that he's going fourth i mean he has to round. like yeah. i just i don't understand like i seen mock drafts with with will levis going ahead of cj stroud and bryce young and well they're gonna go ahead anthony like, richardson going sixth to the lions and stuff like that like i just i have well, no he's idea. not going ahead of them like that's not happening like he's not going ahead of any of those guys but he is gonna go i mean now, if does he go in front of Hendon Hooker? It's going to be interesting. Um, that I think they're going to go around the same time, uh, and that's kind of how the season went. Where they're older, because I think Stetson's what twenty five. See, yeah, yeah, that's just <laughs> uncharted waters. He's entering the Chris Winkie zone a little bit. Uh, but Brandon it's not Mita. old. I mean, what is Anthony Richardson right now? Probably twenty one. Twenty. I think he's twenty. I mean, he's third Maybe year in 21. college, right? I mean, he had yeah. the red shirt, and then he's played two years so he is he's not he's not a young guy and he he's also 21. hasn't been good so it's uh, but whatever if, but he's six four two thirty. if, and if that's will levis and, and anthony richardson are good nfl players then i will concede to the nfl that i know nothing about what it takes to play quarterback in the nfl but right now i'm just i'm just kind of baffled but you know th- this isn't about anthony richardson and uh, and will levis we got plenty of time to, to talk about those guys how did Georgia thrash them when you watch this game, Matt Green? If you had to explain it to somebody who did not watch Georgia TCU on Monday night, how did how would you explain Georgia demolishing them 65-7? to um, That's a good question, honestly. I think because the only way to really explain it is like Georgia's just better at every single level of the team. It's like I, I saw a lot of like pregame stuff of like, oh, you know, who's got the better running back? group who's got the better receivers who's got the better offensive line defensive back just all like just stacking them up and tcu had several of of those of those edges according to some experts and and i was honestly shocked at how many people were actually picking tcu with desmond howard picking tcu and but but whatever i I was kind of surprised it's like i think yeah the defensive back or or tcu's defensive backs good is hodges tomlinson like uh an nfl player like for sure but it's like 
is their secondary on the whole actually better than Georgia? Like, probably not. Like, is is the running game something TCU does well? Absolutely. Do their guys have better stats? For sure. Are they running? Is their running game better than Georgia? Like, I don't really think so. It's like it's just kind of at a, like Max Duggan. Even he's like he was a star player. Is Max Duggan better than Stetson? I don't really know that he is. Like, I don't know that they actually had any edge at at any level of the of the of the team and and then ultimately just in the trenches is just George just built different than TCU is and I think TCU's built different than Ohio State I think that was the biggest difference is when you we the number one reason Ohio State was able to to compete with Georgia the way they did was because they kept CJ Stroud clean clean ish that was the most CJ Stroud's actually ever been sacked in a game in his career tied with Michigan from last year Georgia got to him four times but it felt like he had forever and that was something Ohio State was able to do that basically no one who's played Georgia has been able to do uh, this season. Like, not not in the big games, at least. So, it was, uh, I think, ultimately, it was just Georgia just dominated every facet of the game. When did you feel like it was over? Um, I know different people had different feelings. I thought it was over when um, they kicked the field goal where I was annoyed, where I was like, <laughs> the where Georgia kicked the field goal to go up to nothing, I was like, this, under any other circumstance, would be like a cowardly move and um, something that should be eviscerated. Like if Hypel ever did something like that, that would drive me up the wall. Um, but they did it, and I was like, that's, this this game's over. It's 10 nothing, and they're just like, we, we're fine. And obviously, TCU had the busted coverage play on the following drive i believe if i remember correctly and you're like oh people are like oh maybe they they die back in i'm like if georgia was ever in nervous about getting in a shootout with tcu they're not kicking that field goal i think georgia kicked that because they were like oh they they're not gonna have an answer for any of this we're gonna be able to score See, well they're averaging that. what 10 yards to play at that I point think you need i think you need points when you get a turnover a short field so it's like you know it was like a fourth and five fourth and six like I think you just go go safe, you know. You were averaging ten yards to play, but the this, the drive obviously stalled out, you know, if it ended up with a fourth down. So I definitely didn't think at that point, especially since TCU came down and scored right after that, and then even when they had the 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 busted coverage to to McConkey on that big the big touchdown to put us up seventeen seven, and honestly on that play, if if the corner goes with McConkey. Macintosh is wide open on the same side, so it's like you really just—he probably breaks the tackle if he if he catch, if he catches it and uh, takes it for the to the end zone. But after that, it's like it was seventeen seven. But then the next drive where Stetson just had has the walk in touchdown, and it's like two guys have nobody to block, and Stetson just walks right in. That drive was just so easy that it was like at twenty four seven. You're like, okay, I think this this actually might be over. But the true. The true play that made it over, I think, was um, Javon Bullard's interception right before mm. halftime. Like, that was just dumb. Like, you're, it's third and 18, and you're throwing, like, a 14-yard pass into double coverage. It's like, okay, what happens if the guy catches this? It's, like, it's not a first down. So it was just a, a dumb risk to take right before the half. And and that's another thing. Kirby, like, Kirby's been criticized for, like, his game management for years. And I think people are finally – finally giving up the narrative like yeah he's a really good coach also on top of being a recruiter it's like he called a timeout on that drive like he was that was a very aggressive move like to to try to get the ball back and then tcu throws bowler gets the pick and then george is able to score in like the last 38 30 seconds to go up 38 7 uh before the 
before halftime, and that's when you're like, it's 38-7. I was even I was trying to jinx it in the house. I was just like, guys, it's 38-7. We're not the Atlanta Falcons. Tom Brady's not on the other sideline. This this shit is over. Like I don't care. It's it's over. They can't score on us. So yeah, it's I would say probably the but the the twenty four seven is probably when you felt like yeah this is this is gonna be easy. Yeah, that's fair. I will say like I I forget who I was listening to who talked about like the analyst role and I I wonder if that's part of it because like we're giving Kirby credit for the timeout call that saved the game against Ohio State and what you're talking about there. Um, you got the headset and there's so many people in your ear we don't know who it is but like I think that's like part of the appeal of having these two hundred k analysts who uh at some of these universities where their entire job is to help in game management um and like hey time out here or hey do this here here's the odds here um so i wonder too i wonder if coaches would ever be honest about how much of uh, these big time like the alabamas the georgias um the clemsons the tennessees now i mean up and down the list of like how how much of it is it just the coach making these calls like these gut calls or, and how much of it is just the unbelievable support staff in the building who are around helping as well. How, how collective of an effort is this? Because that would help in terms of identifying how, how um, on their own these head coaches are in today's game with making these kind of big, big game calls. Yeah, without a doubt. Like, I think that's the number one thing Kirby took from Nick Saban. Like, I mm. think the the reason that Nick Saban is the GOAT, I think, is his actual CEO ability of, you know, uh, putting the right people in the, in the right jobs, just having every no stone left unturned, just having, you know, contingency plans for your contingency plans. He just, I think... You know, Sam Pittman, I, I think, credited Kirby that he's, like, worried about who, like, the the eighth string, like, uh, snapper is or something like that. He's just, like, he's always worried about every single aspect of the organization. I think that's, that's what's made Nick Saban as elite. Because, I mean, these guys, at the end of the day, once you get to Division One, like, football circles... You're not you're not coaching stuff that other people don't know. There's no secrets. They're having damn coaching clinics like, oh, this is what I do when I see this situation and talking about it with other coaches. Like they all strategize. They they all know so much. They've forgotten more about football than any of us will ever know. You know, like these guys are so elite just mentally and thinking the game of football when you get to that level. So I think it's the the actual, like the ability to be a recruiter obviously is huge for Kirby Smart and just the administrative aspect of it, of just like having just a perfectly run organization. Like like you look at Georgia, like, I mean, Todd Munkin has, has credited Mike Bobo for, for game planning multiple games this year. Like, I think Munkin is honestly the, the one that, that this game was a showcase of Todd Monken because there's been kind of like a, a theory, you know, kind of, you know, message board talk of, of amongst Georgia fans that it's like, are we like, are we, how much are we holding back on a week to week basis? It feels like so much you see Georgia get these big leads, run it out in the third and fourth quarter that it, it feels like we're leaving so much on the table and you're constantly having to defend Georgia's offense when you talk to other other fan base is like, oh yeah, but we could do way more if the quarterback threw for four quarters, you know, if this, if that. And it's like, there's, there's, this is the last game of the season. Can't hold back now. Right. Uh, the, the great Dan Fouts quote, um, you looked at this game and it was like, this was Todd Monken just emptying the clip. It was like, this is everything. Like we just, 
we're going to throw everything at TCU. They're not really prepared for this. Georgia's had so many different ways to beat teams. I feel like that's that's what I talked about on uh, the, the preview of this matchup. It's just like Brock Bowers is the star on this offense, and you saw him have like a star-level performance, like 150 yards and a touchdown. But like Kenny McIntosh has been such a star for this offense. Like he had 50 yards rushing, only one catch in this game for negative yards. Like he's been, he's like the third or fourth leading receiver on this team. Like Arian Smith, after 100 yards in the Ohio State game, had one catch for three yards. Even A.D. Mitchell only had one catch in this game, but it was for a touchdown. Like there's just so many guys on this offense. Even McConkey, I think, only had a couple. Or no, he had he had only had one run. He had five for 88 and two touchdowns. So like, there's just so many different ways for this team uh to beat the opponent it was just i feel like you got to see the full display of like yeah this is i mean we could have hung 65 every game or anything but like this this georgia offense it felt like all season we we weren't seeing four quarters of just what they could do and and you you saw it in this one like it was just it was a bloodbath like they they were just tcu didn't know what hit them and this was just this was elite offensive play how about uh, the just the really brutal uh, David Pollock Nick Saban exchange? Did you see that? <laughs> I did see that. That's I incredible. Mean, I will say, and I've said this, I think going in, the people who are just dunking on the grave of Nick Saban in this album, they were um, maybe like they were right there a year ago. Let's not remember, forget that. Um, they absolutely dismantled a good Kansas State team um, who beat TCU, obviously, um, in the Big 12 title game. Just absolutely obliterated them out of the building. In similar fashion to what Georgia just be- did to TCU. They obviously did not win a title in the last two years with Bryce Young. It's kind of wild that he did- he will walk out of Bama without actually with a ring as the guy under center, considering he's the best Alabama quarterback of all time. I... I just, you look at this class coming in that they have, it's arguably their best class ever. Um, I think Bama's going to be fine. I think Georgia is now for certain, but it goes back to what I'm saying, where it's a game of inches. It's a game of moments for these big dogs like Bama and Georgia. And I don't think it's that clear. I think Georgia is 1A, but I'm like, Bama still won in 2020. Bama was still right there in 2021. I understand they underachieved under Bama standards because like you said before the year, and I was one of those people who predicted Bama to win, uh, win it all this year. And it was going to be a revenge tour for Saban based on uh, that loss in the national title game to Georgia. But like, let's, let's pump the brakes on Nick Saban loosening his grip on the college football world. I think that's a little premature. I think it's more one A and one B. I think now we're at a point where Georgia and Alabama are coexisting in this we run the sport vortex. So I, I think that's more of what it is. I don't think Georgia has like knocked Bama out. I think it's just Georgia has joined Alabama. Does that make sense? I think that makes sense. But because by definition, I think that kind of means the Bama dynasty is over. It's like, that doesn't mean that Bama can no longer win a championship, but, but if they win next year, hold... that'd be two and four years, right? <laughs> that's a dynasty two and four but years. This, but is it i mean the dynasty and they went in the third they went another but, one like I, I think that's still a dynasty but i'm saying i'm saying i think the dynasty is over because they had this stranglehold on being the elite team of college football like there was mm. no like 
there was no like close second. Like people tried to act like Clemson was a close second for a few years, and it's like they were second. They were a clear second, but they weren't ever actually close to Alabama. They had a couple years of just you know elite, a, a couple teams that were as good as Alabama. But that's that's not to be confused with the program with the machine that Alabama is. It's like where their rebuilding years are when they have you know, Jalen Hurts as the starter and they, they go to the national championship game, you know, it's or, or last year is a, a rebuilding year where they lose to Georgia in the national championship game. So they, it feels like now they're just, they're a, like a regular elite team in college football. Like they're, yeah, they could win the national championship. Their chances to win the national championship are as good or better than, than just about anyone out there. But in terms of like the true, like them just being the juggernaut of just like the standard of college football, I feel like you have to say that 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 era is over. We'll see. Let me see how next year goes. Let me see. Without Stetson Bennett. I mean, you think they're going to be better next year? Without Bryce Young? Without Will Anderson? Without Jameer Gibbs? Like, Jameer Gibbs at times, like, was the only thing their offense had. Like, they're going to hit the portal, I'm sure. But they brought in, you know, the number one best class of all time. Is that right? The, Mm -hmm. the, The highest ranked class ever in this. So it's obviously big time, but, like, you know, Georgia brought in the number two class, you know, it's like Georgia brought in a super elite class as well. And there's, there's a lot more proven, you know, commodities on Georgia's roster. Like they're, they're not like Georgia, the, the 2023 was after last year, 2023 was kind of always perceived to be maybe a better team than 2022, just because this team was so young. Justice Haynes is coming in who they beat Georgia for. Like that was a huge surprise. No, for sure. So he might be a big factor. We see these rookies. Like, I mean, you saw Brock Bowers as it make an immediate uh, impact. And we've seen that at some of these schools where as freshmen, Jace McClellan, obviously going to be the guy there. But I think they're going to be fine there. We'll see what happens at receiver. I think that's one of the bigger questions with Kobe Prentice and Jermaine Burton, I assume, is going to be back. But I think uh, Corey Brooks, Malik Benson was that big Juco transfer that uh, Bama beat Tennessee out for. I think he has a chance to be really, really good for them. Um, but also if you look at a guy like Brock Bowers in 2021, he's like, that was one of the cherries on top. Like Georgia's yeah. core was like their juniors and seniors on defense that like had been around a while, like the, the Jordan Davises and Devonte Wyatt's coming back for their senior year. Like, I mean, obviously the quarterback, uh, room turned out to be way better than it was expected to be. But I don't know. I think Alabama, I mean, you saw what they were this year. Like, they were not a juggernaut this year. It's hard for me to think Alabama is going to be better in 2023 than they were in 2022 without but it wouldn't the best surprise you, would it? it? I mean, nothing really surprises you with Alabama. But like if Ty Simpson's awesome immediately, would that really jump? Like he's a if Ty Simpson's star. better than Bryce Young, that would absolutely shock me. And I think with what this roster is, like it's not necessarily getting like a lot better, like in terms, like obviously like true, you can only put so much on true freshmen. Like they're going to have good players on this team, but Alabama's losing a lot of their, their core and, and especially uh, the best quarterback they've ever had in the history of the program. Like, I think that's, that's a lot. And that's why Georgia is scary because Stetson Bennett, while we are going to call him now the best quarterback in the history of Georgia's program, it's like, if they land a five-star number one quarterback in the country, like there's a good chance that that guy could be better than Stetson Bennett and Georgia's offense could be better under an actual NFL uh, highly touted prospect. You know, it's like, I, I don't think people have like even made that realization yet that Georgia was doing this with, and obviously Stetson is way better than a, just a former walk-on. Like that doesn't do him justice, but 
this is a guy that we're debating if he can play in the league or not. If Georgia actually gets a guy who's a first-round pick running the show on offense, like this offense could be even more dangerous. For sure. I just let's see. Can I get a couple of years of Bama not being national champions? Can I just get a couple like how? Let's get to three or four, and then we'll start talking. Let's just let's see what happens. I'm not saying I'm rooting for it. Absolutely not. I don't want Georgia and Alabama to just be alternating uh, for the next couple of years. That wouldn't be fun. Um, but we'll see. Uh, who stood out watching from home uh, when you were watching from home? Who stood out to you uh, when you're in the green household? Who you were like, oh my god, he's awesome tonight who who from the dogs were you just really all in on in the moment i think you got to shout out the uh the guy who made the key play in the ohio state game and that would be javon bullard i think Mm. javon bullard was just he was just an absolute playmaker like george had three turnovers in this game javon bullard had two interceptions and a fumble recovery like he's just he's just one of those guys and and once again this guy was a three-star like one of the lowest ranked guys in kirby smart's class was the most outstanding defensive player of the peach bowl and the most outstanding defensive player of the national championship game like this guy playing that that uh that nickel spot he's just he just has what do they say has bad intentions when he gets to the ball like he just hits people hard he's so fast so quick like he's just an explosive player and i think like like i said i feel like the whole three three five thing gets overblown because teams have five defensive backs most teams have five defensive backs on the field most of the time and like it's interesting like kind of the era we we live in uh of, of football that that nickel corner is like that's that's a guy who's who's gonna go in the first round potentially for for being a, a star nickel corner like you're a fifth defensive back but that's just become such a a crucial role in the game of football like Javon Bullard and and on that fumble recovery too I just happened to be watching him the whole play and and he's the guy he's the guy that makes the receiver kind of he he gets around the block and and forces him to the outside and and like that's what allows Chris Smith to a second to 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 get on and on in the play and then javon bullard's just right in the middle of everything and is able to recover the fumble but like that guy he was just he was just making so many plays he, he makes plays in the pass rush uh behind the line of scrimmage and also in coverage and i i don't think i've seen him actually drop sit deep on that like he did on that interception he had like he's usually a guy that's playing right around the line of scrimmage but you know, it was a. I, I honestly don't know if Max Duggan saw him on that play because it looks like Quentin Johnston is just running wide open, and then all of a sudden your your nickel corner is is in center field and he picked it off. So Javon Bullard, I feel like was just everywhere in this game, and this Georgia defense is just 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 absurd. Jalen Carter, I'm definitely gonna miss uh, having a, a defensive tackle that's just absolutely unblockable. Mm. What will stay with you the most from this two-year Georgia run, Matt Green? Oh, man. this uh, The two-year run, I, I think just this level of defense, I think is just absurd in the when all of the narratives, all of Nick Saban saying, you know, great defense doesn't beat great offense anymore. Like, you got you to gotta have elite offense. And obviously, Georgia did have a much better offense. Um, but... I think people thought you couldn't play elite defense anymore. Like it was just about outscoring the opponent and seeing Georgia give up 10 points a game last year, like 14 a game this year. Like that's, that's something that, I mean, we might not see the end of that with what Georgia brought in like six or seven top 50 recruits that are all defensive players in this upcoming class. So their defense might not be slowing down anytime soon, but 
also just Stetson Bennett. Like this is just like the greatest story in the in the history of like college football, maybe of of who he is and just like how determined this guy. Not only was he to play college football, but specifically to play quarterback at the University of Georgia. Like George is constantly telling him that you're not good enough to play here because that's the one thing that's I think the best part of Stetson Bennett's story to me is it's one thing to start as a walk on. And then a Rodrigo Blankenship starts a walk on, get an opportunity, and then you earn a scholarship, and then you're an All American. Like that's a great story, but it's another thing to start as a walk on, and you're like, you know what? I'm never gonna play here if I just sit here, sit around, and just try to work up the depth chart. They're always gonna out recruit me. I I need to go somewhere and prove, get the get the reps on my own show that I'm good enough to play at somewhere like Georgia and to just transfer to a community college and actually get a scholarship to Georgia. And then, you know, he had the opportunity to start and then he, you know, he wasn't good enough and JT Daniels becomes the guy. And it's like, that's it. It was an incredible story. This guy, this former walk-on had, I mean, if, if that was all he ever had in his life, it was probably like, I got to start seven or eight games as the quarterback for University of Georgia. Like, that's the greatest, that's the greatest experience of my life. And then this guy fucking comes back the next year and all of a sudden, you know, he's the quarterback on a national championship team and then he runs it back and does it twice. Like, three, three quarterbacks have ever won two national championships. The graphic put four on the screen, but you know how I feel about USC claiming their, their back-to-back garbage. It never happened. They won one BCS title, but Tommy Frazier in 94-95, uh, AJ McCarron in 11-12, and 12, and now, now Stetson Bennett. And that, none of those guys are good NFL quarterbacks, so that doesn't mean anything, but in the college level, like Stetson Bennett's legacy, it's just, it's just insane, man. Yeah, it is. Uh, and the Timothy Chalamet uh, biopic on uh, Stetson Bennett's career where he'll be playing. Stetson Bennett should be one for the ages in a couple of years. The, uh, the underdog. That's that's the name of the movie right there. That's that's the Stetson Bennett story. Um, also, mm-hmm. the I think the maybe my favorite moment um, mm-hmm. of this that kind of like almost it's honestly going to be like the, it could be the the rallying cry of Kirby Smart's entire career. It could be his entire Mm. legacy is after the Clemson win in 2021 to say you're either elite or you're not. It's like, that's a, that's a freezing cold takes an old takes exposed, just waiting to happen right there. Like you're either elite or you're not lose six weeks later. Oh, I guess you're not, you know, like that's just waiting to be thrown right back in your face. You say it after the first game of the season. You didn't say it after you won the national championship. After the first game of the season, you're either elite or you're not. You go win the national championship. You go win it a second straight time. Like that's about as elite as it gets. But also just the to 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 predict it before it ever really happened. Like that's that's a gangster move right there. For sure. Um, last thing on this game, or I guess really on this Georgia run to this point, Matt Green. Um, what happens next year with the schedule? I do think it's funny that people are pointing out, like Georgia fans are really upset. They're like, we had Oklahoma on the schedule and uh, it got removed. And it's like, well, that's not really the game that would have made it more made it more palpable for fans, right? Like, I think people are overlooking that that's not the issue. It's not the one out of conference game that Georgia's just going to blow out Oklahoma. We saw this Oklahoma team. Like, that's not a game. Like, we're not missing anything by replacing them with whoever it was, Austin P or whatever um both gonna be blowouts 
I will say the issue, and this is something that gets cleaned up once Oklahoma and Texas come here, is that you just get more variety and you'll get more uh, more variety in the SEC, just Georgia getting challenged a little bit more. Because part of the issue right now is the East is not great outside of Tennessee and uh, Tennessee and Georgia. Florida's down. Kentucky's down a little bit. South Carolina is going to miss a bowl next year. You have Mizzou who's down. Um, obviously, Vanderbilt's down. And then you obviously miss Alabama and LSU uh, in the SEC too for the next year. Like that's more of the issue is that you really miss all the potential good regular season um, contests outside of ending the year back-to-back on the road at Tennessee and at Georgia Tech. Um, I, uh, I'll i go ahead and pencil that one in. Uh, just, folks, get ready for uh, for that one in Knoxville uh, later on next year. But do we, is it a three-peat? Like, we've never seen this. We're now in the territory where it's like, should they be expected to go three straight? Like, is this now a three-straight situation? I think it's definitely on the table, especially we've talked about, you know, the how the uncertainty of the quarterback position for like everyone in the top 10. It's like almost everyone is replacing their starter or they like just replaced him at the end of the year and it's going to be his first full year starting type of thing. So from that perspective, there's no real clear favorite. And with what Georgia returns, like they return most of the roster. And I think Carson Beck is a guy that a lot of people expect to step in and, and be ready to, you know, have that more prototype NFL, like arm or, or something, you know, like he's supposed to have a cannon and, he, and he's got, he, he looks pretty athletic too. I think Georgia fans might, you know, take exception to the schedule, like, you know, jabs, just because the Oklahoma part was the only part you're in control of. It's mm. like the out of conference, it's like, yeah, the out of conference is terrible, but we did have Oklahoma on there before the SEC, you know, made Georgia take them off because they're not going to get both uh, ends of the the home and home. It's like there's nothing Georgia can really do about Florida being down, about Auburn being down, about South Carolina having like this breakthrough, you know, program trajectory changing uh, season and then just all of the key players leaving and having nothing really left over. Like I would be honestly surprised if South Carolina makes a bowl game at this point. Um, and then just you get Ole Miss and Auburn from the West. It's like, you know, that's that's probably not the, the most difficult uh, two Western division teams that an Eastern team is going to uh, face in 2023. And then it's so it's like you look at November 18th, second last game of the year versus uh, in Knoxville. It's like that's that's really the, the one game that scares you other than, you know, just going at Auburn and just traditionally just what Jordan Harris Stadium is, and that being whichever quarterback uh, wins the job, most likely Carson Beck, that is their first road start of their career, like four or five games in. But we've seen what Auburn is the last couple of years. It's like we've seen we've seen what LSU, like Brian Kelly, year one. Like obviously, Sonny Dykes just did a lot year one. Um, there's there's teams that can that, even Josh Heupel year one. They were they Tennessee wasn't a great team, but they were a much dangerous much more dangerous team than they'd previously been. So we've seen like teams take a big step and uh, a big turnaround in year one. So, you know, Hugh Freeze could have Auburn be a much dangerous team next year, but you're, you're like trying to find the games that like could maybe somehow potentially uh, trip Georgia up because this like Florida, I, I just don't, <laughs> I, I have no idea what direction Florida is really going in. I, I, it's hard to it's hard to know what to make of their 2022 season. So yeah, you look at at Auburn and at, at Tennessee, 
and then maybe just Ole Miss because that's an op- uh, a matchup you don't see very often. But uh, it's it's hard to see it's hard to see two losses on this. It's hard to see one. There's like no no way you can see a second loss. So while Georgia might not be the favorite to win it all, I mean whatever. If there's any bets to actually make the college football playoff, I'd almost lock them in like a hundred percent. Yeah, um, we'll see. There's a lot of musical chairs, except for the Pac-12 for whatever reason. Like Cam Rising announced this week he's back. So you get Cam Rising back. Uh, you get Michael Penix Jr. back at UW. You get Bo Nix back at Oregon, which was a surprise. And then you get Caleb Williams back at USC. So we'll see if they cannibalize each other again. But the Pac-12 should uh, benefit from that continuity at the top. Because the SEC is just uh, all new faces. Joe Milton, Carson Beck, probably Ty Simpson. Um, I guess Jackson Dart uh, is back. So that's something there for Ole Miss. Jane Daniels is back, so that's good for LSU, but a uh, new quarterback in there for Kentucky with Devin Leary, new quarterback uh, for Florida with Graham Mertz. You just go up and down this conference. There's just so much turnover all over the place that um, I don't know, uh, but it's amazing that we're here, that a three-peat is probably the favorite um, scenario here for, for the dogs going into 2023. Also, I have uh, some advice for some college football mm. programs out there. If you should win your first national championship in a year that ends in one mm. so that then you can say go for two and 22 and then I'd go for three and 23. It's just, it's great for marketing, for branding purposes. It's just, it's good stuff. I got to give Brandon Adams, Dog Nation a shout out. There weren't many people talking about Georgia do like repeating this year, even though obviously every defending champion always has the opportunity to repeat. Like, I feel like the Braves were almost talked about more of a of a repeat champion than Georgia was. I uh, I I wasn't really expecting a a back to back national title, but they they had the go for two and twenty two hashtag going uh, very early. So I gotta I gotta give them the shout out. Also, mm. one one grinds my gears. I got here. I just hate that the college football playoff ruined the their logo on this chest with mm. putting it in the January that it's being played. Because it just adds so much confusion. It's like, is this the 22 national champion? The jersey says 2023. But that's how they did it from the start. So they just kind of have to keep it going. But yeah, I, I, I always hate seeing that. Because it's like, we're the 2022 champions. But all the pictures say 2023. Like, I don't know. It's That's always been like a weird thing to me. Like the bowl games. Just just call it the previous year. So we, not, we don't get confused. I would agree with that. Um, I think that's the way to go. Uh, Matt Green, before we wrap up here on our national championship recap show here on the full ride on the Chase Thomas podcast, youtube.com slash Chase Thomas podcast, like, and subscribe, all that good stuff. Um, if you would prefer to watch this very program, um, our final top 10, which is a little bit different. We can, uh, we each did our final top 10, um, as this season concluded here. It's amazing that we're here, that the season is over, but it is finally over and the off season, uh, continues on. It seems like uh, for you, Matt Green, we don't have to dive into this. This is more of an off-season thing, but I think the calendar might be changing. You see the coaches talking about uh, how ridiculous the December stuff is yes. and that they're going on record and pushing back that I think it seems like we're heading towards National Signing Day going back to February where it's like we're getting rid of the December Signing Day uh, extravaganza because part of the issue is just enrollment for January where you have to get kids in for the start of classes at the early part of January and 
I don't know. We'll we'll see, but it seems like we're headed towards that way, and that'll be something to monitor this uh, off season, uh, which would be good, uh, making it easier and making the December calendar uh, less insane. Matt Green, without would you a like doubt, to go- got it. We got to make that happen for sure. Um, our top ten. Would you prefer to go first on uh, your final top ten rankings for the college football yeah, season? Yeah, you want to just both name our top ten, and then and then we talk about it. Uh, or you want to you name mine we talk about it, you name yours and we talk about it how you want to do it let's do that let's you run through your 10 and then uh i'll run through my 10 and we can uh okay. de- decipher why we did what we did all right so uh i'm gonna start at one i got the georgia bulldogs number one ohio state buckeyes coming at number two for me tcu at three michigan four tennessee five alabama six washington seven eight Number uh, number eight is Penn State, Utah at nine, and then I went Kansas State at ten. I'll be honest, I was struggling with my nine and ten. I thought about Tulane in there, but I'm like, do I really think Tulane's better than Kansas State? Like the Big Twelve Championship, like Kansas State was just a good team. Tulane, they were good, you know, but I don't know that that I, I'll give them a little honorable mention. But yeah, that that's my top ten right there. What uh, what are your what are your first thoughts? Um, Kansas State, I did not have, uh, in my top 10. Um, I think Washington, I was surprised to see that you're that high on them. I think they're really good. Obviously double digit win season for them. Year one, another one under the radar with Kalen DeBoer. I thought about putting them in for USC cause I have USC at eight in mine. Um, but I just came down to like what I saw the best version of these teams is kind of where I landed in my final top 10. So after the whole, we saw all the now, games. See, that's a different story though best version of somebody is different than like what they consistently put on on the field this season that's my top 10 my end of season top 10 i'm this is like mvp voting we all have our own ideas of like what (laughs) matters to us and for me i did one georgia two bama three ohio state four tennessee five tcu six michigan seven utah eight usc nine penn state 10 oregon now see how does alabama get to number two i have alabama at six alabama i think would be favored in a neutral side against ohio state at this point uh, based on what we saw against kansas state and then ohio state losing to michigan and then getting there i think they would be favored uh, on a neutral side that matters to me i think alabama would be favored against everybody outside of georgia uh, to this point, I think um, Bama losing two games by a combined four points, uh, one being on the road in Tennessee and the other being uh, the rivalry game against LSU, also on the road uh, late on a crazy two-point uh, try by uh, Jason Taylor's what son, nephew. I don't remember which one uh, he is. But either way, uh, two close calls, and outside of that, they took care of business each and every week, and I think they finished top five in defense and top ten in offense. They were... They were electric everywhere. Bryce Young, I think, is still the best quarterback in the country. You go up and down the list. I don't know. I think they, the Kansas State blowout and them all playing and just being like, let's just just be clear. Like, we would blast TCU. We would blast Michigan. And uh, if you put us in the national title game, we would give Georgia the best game. And I that's the one downside of this year is that we never saw Georgia versus Alabama this year. The fact that we never got to see these two teams play this year especially based on what we, we saw last see year these two teams play say it again because Alabama, do you know why we didn't get to see i'm not, these two I'm teams not disagreeing play? with why Alabama what i'm saying is business i'm not disagreeing with that magarine all i'm saying is like it would have been nice to see because then we would have known like how much of a drop-off there was 
from 2021 to 2022 with this Alabama team. I would have liked to have seen it, like an SEC title game. I would have loved to have seen it, but I I don't see how you can look at what these two teams, what these teams did in 2022 and justify Alabama being better than Tennessee. Like, what did Alabama do that was better than Tennessee in 2022? Like, they played, they barely beat Texas. They didn't get, beat, te- they didn't get their beat brains Texas. beat in by South Carolina. I mean, th- that's true. They, they they barely beat Texas. They barely beat A&M. They barely beat even Ole Miss. Like, they, they lost to LSU. They lost to Tennessee. Like, what they do in a Sugar Bowl game, like, that's not going to change my opinion. Like, I know how talented Alabama is, but, like, this kind of just – benefit of the doubt Alabama gets like I don't really understand like they they were never dominant at any point this season and like you saw Tennessee have dominant performances against uh against uh, an LSU team like against I mean at least the they won this crazy shootout with Alabama obviously that was a great game but like I look at Ohio State like Ohio State is the only team that I can really justify being ahead of TCU like TCU earned, like, I feel like they just got blasted, so people act like they're just a fraud now. Like, they had to beat Michigan. Like, they had to beat Michigan to get to that game. Ohio State's the only team that can sit here like, we played Georgia really close, and maybe, and we can, like, have a legitimate claim that we're better than TCU. Anyone else, it's like, yeah, Alabama could be favored on a neutral field versus TCU, but, like, this team went third, started twelve and zero, went twelve and one, obviously after losing to you know a top ten team in the in their uh, conference championship game. But I just this this benefit of the doubt that Alabama just automatically gets. I mean, I I understand why people just want to say it, but like how how often do you just or after how long do you have to just look at what they do on the field? And they weren't they weren't dominant at all this year. They're one of three teams in college football this year to be top ten in offense and defense. It was them, Michigan, and Georgia. And that and they were a really good team. But it's like when I when you're talking number two, like I mean, we don't know how, how Georgia would have played uh, again or how Alabama would have played against Georgia. So like we we never got that matchup. But I think with what Ohio State did, like Alabama's schedule wasn't like particularly like difficult compared to Ohio State's. Like we we criticize kind of some of these Big Ten schedules, but like there's a lot of bad teams in the SEC this year. Like they they played Tennessee. Like that that's probably other than Michigan, that's probably better than anybody uh, Ohio State played. But I don't know. Like Alabama didn't have the resume to back it up, and just all their close wins. Like I don't know. I just I didn't see it from this year. And I'm definitely for what T- Tennessee did on the field. I'm I'm putting Tennessee at Alabama. I thought about moving Oregon up significantly, like to six or seven. Like Oregon, the best version, and like what we saw with Bo Nix in that group after week one and the thrashing to uh, to Georgia. I thought they just they really found their rhythm and they were an efficient monster um, up until that Washington loss where Bo Nix gets shaken up in some crazy uh, in game calls by Dan Lanning that kind of flipped that one too. But um, I don't know. I think that's one I think about. But then Utah, it's like you lost to Florida. This was a horrible Florida team. So I don't even feel great about putting them as high yeah. as I did. But they also blasted USC twice. And, hey, they deserve credit for um, just the kind of program that they've built. And they've been one of the better teams in the country. I think Penn State, I, you could sell me on being higher. Uh, their only two losses were to the two teams they should have lost to in Michigan and Ohio State. And they took care of business in, in every other game and were great. And they were, I think, top 10 in defense. And where did they end up? Yeah, 20th in offense. I mean, they were borderline 
top eight, top seven team this year. Obviously, win the bowl game, the last big Rose Bowl, uh, non-playoff Rose Bowl. Uh, the Big Twelve, excuse me, the Big Ten, um, Pac-12 Rose Bowl. They'll be the last big winners of that one. So, I don't know. Uh, I think Penn State. Uh, has a lot to be excited about. If you're a Penn State fan going into next year with Drew Aller and company, because I think they made big strides uh, getting to 10 wins too, or 11 total. I don't um I don't get your USC at eight either. After getting blasted by Utah and then and then losing to Tulane, like I I, I don't think they put... care about the Tulane game, and I hate to be that guy. I just after how their season ended against uh U uh, Utah, I'm just like I I don't know, man. I, they finished number three in scoring, 41 points a game. Uh, right there behind Tennessee and Ohio State. Um, obviously had the Heisman winner. I just, Caleb Williams, he belongs somewhere in that top 10. Like him alone is enough uh, for them to be a top 10 team. I think this exercise honestly told, I mean, like, not, don't get me wrong, a 12-team playoff, it's going to be fun. You know, it's mm-hmm. I'm going to watch college football and it's going to be more meaningful games. Like, and, and at the end of the season, it's going to be more meaningful games. What that does to the regular season meaningful games is, is still to be determined. But what this exercise showed me was, like, I'm not really looking forward to 12 teams. Like, you had Penn State at 9. I had Penn State at 8. Like, Penn State, that that may as well have been, like, every team Mark Richt had. Like, like they, they, they lost to the two best teams they played. Didn't really beat any good teams until the Rose Bowl. Like they they did get the the win in the Rose Bowl, so like that's that's good, and that's probably what justified them being top t- top eight or nine to me. I probably wouldn't have had them in the top ten because that's like the only really good team they played. But like, I'm struggling to get to ten like teams that I thought were good. Like, we're gonna have Kansas State. I mean, did they end up with four losses? You had Oregon in there. I think they ended up with either three or four losses. Like I think three because they beat U- UNC. USC and yeah. Utah both had four losses, uh, right this year. No, Utah uh, had the, three, right? Utah ended up ten and four. Oh, and, I guess they lost uh, the first ball. Yeah, eleven and three. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like Kansas State ended up ten and four. Like it was, it's a struggle to find like ten like really good teams, and it's like I I feel like this sport just lasts as as long as it has. With people fucking voting on who they thought the best team was at the end of the game, when one plays eight and two plays five, like, oh, no, one is better. Actually, you know, two is better. It's like just this totally just arbitrary system. Like, we fixed that and said, you know what? We'll have the two best teams play. You know what? We'll, we'll get a little bit of leeway. We'll go to four. It's like we still maintain the integrity of, like, you have to be almost perfect to win the championship in this sport. And the four team, it's like if you were just about perfect, like if you're undefeated, you're not going to miss out on a four team playoff. And I feel like that was the ultimate thing, like that screwed teams like, you know, an Auburn in 2004, or even maybe, you know, whatever your opinion is on if you're a Boise State fan or a UCF fan or, or someone like, or even TCU, uh, whatever year that was. Like, if you're undefeated, you're going to make a four team playoff. I think it, it's, you know, it's debatable year in and year out if you're in a group of five, but. Going to 12 teams, like, we're going to start to see three and four lost teams, like, make it. And, you know, some of these teams have three and four losses because they lost their bowl game. So, it, I guess that is a little skewed from that perspective. But I just I, – I wonder, like, how many teams are really deserving to play for a national championship at the end of the season? You know, it's like the, the four teams just seems like the perfect kind of – we're, we're now seeing different teams make it, too, multiple years in a row. It's like – 
I don't know. It's I think this this showed that it's it's a struggle to find ten good teams in college football, and and now you're gonna have twelve that have a chance to win it. It's I don't know. It it, it should be interesting to see if if nothing else. Well, I think, and we can end it here. Richard Johnson, uh, I cited him earlier, but he's a great, great Sports Illustrated writer, and it's a great podcast. But something else that he said that kind of speaks to what you're saying, because he's in the know, and he talked about like the people in the committee and stuff. Like the expansion is not about getting more champions. Like the result's still going to be the same. Like the blue chippers and the Georgias, the Bamas of the world are still going to win these 12 team playoffs more often than not. It's more about participation of those four and three loss teams where they can hang the banner of like we made the playoff in 2018 what a cool moment for our sport that we or for our university that we at least qualified you know what i mean like that's what it's about it's not actually about getting more access for those teams to make a national title run it's just for them to be like hey we played an important game in uh in late december or january and uh that's never been a thing for us before like minnesota will be in a playoff at some point and it's like they would have never been there in the 14 playoffs so it's more about just inclusion if the accomplishment is less does it the casual fan doesn't care about that the same like the casual fan does not care like tcu this is a ridiculous accomplishment cincinnati is a crazy accomplishment but once you get into the, I mean, Cincinnati, I guess, isn't like the craziest accomplishment because they didn't have to necessarily beat any juggernauts to get to the final four. But so from that perspective, it is going to be more decided on the field. I mean, it's a good point. It's going to be more, you know, those those games between number 15 and number 10 are going to mean a lot more down the stretch of the season. But, um, you know, we'll see what it, what it does to some of those, those Georgia-Tennessee number one versus number three regular season matchups, how how significant those games will really be moving forward. I'm just not a skies falling person. Like we college football is still like about the regular season in the fall Saturdays. Like I'm not going to think about that stuff when I'm packing Neil in. I think people are overblowing like how much anticipation or what this scenario or what the environment's going to be like. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, it's still going to be a big deal when that game happens with a 14 playoff or a 12 team playoff, even if the stakes are different. Cause you're not really thinking about that going in. Like I promise you, you're not, you just want to beat your rival. Like that's just not, not coming into play there i would say i think the losses just aren't as devastating though it's like like what is the kick six if we got a if i mean that was before the 14 playoff mm-hmm. so i mean i guess you could make the argument the kick six is me is not well, it as matters for seeding now right like playoff. that's the difference is it will affect seeding or if you do that it's like oh crap we don't get a buy or something now the kick six and now you have to go play a, a good penn state team or something i don't know yeah, and that, and that's and that's fair. It's it'll like I said, it's it's a it's only doomsday, you know, because we haven't we haven't seen this, and we have, you know, I don't like the NFL as much as college football, you know. So the more it looks like the NFL, I worry that I won't enjoy the sport as much. Like you have teams that lose six and seven games that can that can win the Super Bowl, and that's just not the case in college football. And it won't be, you know, to that extent, six or seven games, but. You could definitely see some three or four loss teams that can, you know, make a run, and, and you know, you can argue if that's a if that's a good thing or a bad thing for the sport. But uh, ultimately, I don't think you have to worry about it be. becoming the NFL anytime soon. We just had a sixty-five-seven national title game, Matt Green. That's not <laughs> happening in the Super Bowl. I'm just going to go ahead and say we're not even anywhere close. No, that's fair. Uh, but yeah, I just I. I think for the people that don't like the same teams being it, 
over and over again, like I don't think twelve is necessarily going to fix anything. But it's not know, about fixing. It's just we're about getting see more yeah. different matchups that we never. That's get to the see. main thing is they want different matchups for TV, and that's the biggest thing. It's we're gonna get matchups that we never used to get, and they're under a playoff banner, and it's just they're gonna do bonkers ratings. I think they'll do better ratings in the final. Like I think you have to do a home playoff game for Alabama versus like washington or something or usc like that's just that's something we've never seen before in the sport and i think that's going to be a big big number and a big reason for those folks to travel and go see it so yeah washington they're one of the few teams we didn't really say anything about them they're one of the few teams that got kind of hosed this year Mm. like that pac 12 format just changing it before the year ever started like getting rid of the divisional like but not changing the scheduling like they act, they got just straight hosed like with with a, the pac 12 having so many good teams that like were playing each other they didn't really prove it was never really proven that they weren't one of the two best teams in the pac 12 this year like they could have won the the pac 12 north and actually been in there but i don't know i i i felt like washington could could feel a little hosed about how their 2022 season went but you know not that they would have won the championship or anything but there you go Matt Green, always got, a pleasure, my sir. Oh, I, got, yeah. I got one more thing. I'll, I'll leave you with this, sir. One of the uh, one of the greatest lines in television history mm-hmm. is Andy Bernard in the final episode of The Office. Mm-hmm. I don't know you know if you know. I know where you're going with this. this. Yeah. I wish someone would tell me when. when oh, I totally butchered it. I wish someone would tell me when we were in the good old days. You know, mm-hmm. so you can enjoy it more, Georgia fans. We are officially in the good old days. So celebrate every single second of this. Throw out the 1998s. Throw out the 2008s to, to Tennessee and Florida fans. Like, we, we heard the 1980s stuff forever. Like, this is a whole new era, man. It's, it's, uh, it's Georgia. It's Kirby Smart's world in college football. Thank God that we have other sports to pivot to, Matt Green. It's basketball season. It's baseball season. Congratulations on a job well done, but it's everything school time here on the Chase Thomas podcast going forward. Uh, 11 to four Georgia Bulldogs like in basketball. Yeah, looking great. And then I bear. Oh, I yeah, man, to... we got some, we got a basketball team this year. They're, uh, they're not terrible. That's always a start. Matt Green, congratulations, that's, sir. That's where on, they had to start from. On back-to-back national championships. Big accomplishment. We'll see if they can do a three-peat. We have all the time in the world to sort through the possibilities there um, next year our last 14 playoff uh, so next season is it for us on that front and then we're moving on to the 12 team playoff but this is officially it for the two a week uh, portions uh, here on the program back to one a week during the off season we'll have all kinds of fun stuff to talk about all off season long because college football is the year-round sport now um, so all kinds of stuff that we'll parse through uh, but thank you for another fun season um and uh you know there uh, there must be something about this podcast and you appearing on it so two years of matt grant on the podcast two national titles so there you go uh, man appreciate you making the time as always and uh job well done and i will talk to you very soon yes sir All right, hello, and welcome back. Chase Thomas Podcast, taping this on a Tuesday evening. I'm down here in Knoxville, Tennessee. He's up there in New York City. New York City. 
the skyline's back fan graphs on john taylor john good evening sir how are you yeah, we got some nice colors going to mm -hmm. the, the orange at the top of whatever building that is and you, you guys can't see, oh, maybe if i angle you can see it no you can't but there's another building that's got like a, a red white and blue stripe lit up set i don't know why today's uh -huh. uh, is today a is this a weekday anyway it is a weekday it yes, is a tuesday the, yeah the skyline is here and, mm -hmm. and so am i there you go. Is it a Georgia red and black? They didn't do that, hopefully, in Manhattan. I, I would wager that if you stopped the average New Yorker on the street and asked them, what'd you think of the game last night? You'd have to keep going for a bit before <laughs> they were like, I don't even know how many of them even knew there was a national football championship, much less one being played. Although, like, I, honestly, I, I knew it was on last night. I didn't watch it because I, I just flat out do not care. It looks like, based on the score, that was the right decision. It looks like Georgia just beat the living hell out of TCU. Yeah, it was 65-7. It was quite bad. Uh, okay. But you're a Columbia Lions guy, and New York is a Columbia Lions oh, God. just uh, super fan uh, hotbed. We, we all know this. I have two Columbia football games in my No, three? Three mm -hmm. Columbia football games in my life, and I could not tell you a single thing that happened in any of them. Mm. There, it, it is not a fun time. I don't know. Maybe the program's a little better now, but when I was there, as it has been the case since it literally has always existed, I think Columbia mm -hmm. football has literally never been good. They had Marcellus Wiley for that one random year. Huh. Uh, I didn't realize yeah. he went to Columbia. He, I knew he was, he was their, an Ivy. Yeah, I didn't realize he was he, Columbia. He and Sid Luckman are the best Columbia graduates ever to play in the NFL, which says so much in and of itself about Columbia's football program that it's, you know, dude who was there for a year out of nowhere in the 90s and a dude who led the bears to the super bowl like a hundred years ago yeah but hey they're not a football powerhouse john that's, that's not putting it lightly that's not their bread and butter they got other things uh they have yeah, other fencing are they that yeah they have the, a real they have a really good fencing team. that's like, the most get, ivy league thing to be yeah, really like good at their is coach fencing. is like part of the u as i think part of the u.s olympic coaching team like they have multiple usually they recruit internationally kids go on to win gold medals and or other medals at the olympics and international championships like yeah you know it's random mm. one of the the other school i remember from my time at columbia that was also very good at fencing mm. um or one of the ones that was very good at fencing i don't know if they still are ohio state hmm Ohio State at the time I was in college, which was, uh, what, like almost 15 years ago now, give or, depending on when it was, had a like a nationally ranked fencing team that was very good. Have you ever fenced? I have never fenced. I, okay. In retrospect, I had, a, I had a column for the student newspaper, a sports column. In retrospect, I should have asked the fencing coach if I could fence. Hmm. Although one of my friends at college who also wrote for that paper, I believe he actually wrote a story about that. He Because he had fenced, he was from Europe, and he had fenced... I believe in his, uh, at some point, not like professionally or anything, just like as a lark. And so he asked the coach, can I step in against your guys to see how, like, what it's like? Um, mm. And he did a story about that. Interesting. I've never done fencing. I remember Oglethorpe, the school, uh, pro small private school down here in Atlanta, um, where we used to practice for AUM basketball. They had like a whole fencing setup and they had a big program mm. for fencing, but okay. um Never did it. it. It looks cool. Fencing is one of those things that looks cool. Yeah, and it's I also, like the little wispy swords and you smack yeah. people with them. It looks great. Absolutely. Um, John. Yes. The twins, I think, are signing Carlos Correa. Pen I love the pending physical. I love the tweet from Bob Nightingale about the Correa signing that had pending physical in all caps at the end mm -hmm. of it. Bob, like Bob was, was Bob-proofing himself. That was mm -hmm. the, the really special part of that. But... Yeah, as as far as I can tell, and 
I assume that the physical the twins gave Correa was just to look at his medical records one time ago. It's fine, whatever, screw it. And just say, yeah, 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 please come back. Like, yeah, I, I think it's pretty safe to assume that the, the third time is, is the charm here for Carlos Correa. Well, we also know, too, right, because I think the talking baseball guys like Trevor Plouffe, who obviously played many years in Major League Baseball and knows the ins and outs of behind the scenes and negotiations and stuff. Particularly or, Minnesota. Yeah, particularly Minnesota, where it's like this kind of stuff should not be getting out. So no, this was something no, that... And this yeah. is something that the Correa stuff... It, it, leaving aside what it means for the Mets on the field, which is to say, honestly, not that much. Like, mm. obviously, the Mets with Carlos Correa are a better team than the Mets without Carlos Correa, but they are still a really good team without him or with him. With him, obviously, I think was the was the difference between um, prop, maybe division favorite status. Uh, obviously, I don't think anyone has run any any postseason odds projections yet, but I have to imagine Atlanta is probably still the favorite, depending. Mm. Um, and probably some like improved like World Series odds ultimately, but like this Mets team is still really good without him. But I think the Mets for leaving that stuff aside, I think the other thing we're going to see is oh boy, did Steve Cohen walk into one of the largest grievances and easiest grievances the Major League Baseball Players Association has ever gotten to file against an owner? Because holy crap, wow, he. <laughs> went on the record with a reporter to say we we did it, we signed him, here are the terms, it's fine, it's great. Oh my god, you can't, like, again, the Mets will be okay, but this is, I think, similar to the Kumar Rocker stuff. Mm. It's something where it's, you, it is one of those, like, you just can't do it if you're an owner. You cannot do this stuff, and you especially cannot do it publicly. Like, if you're Steve, like, and... I know that this is the price of admission when an eccentric billionaire buys your team, like Mark Cuban and uh, uh, who's the doofus who bought the Clippers? Um, oh, um, uh, Steve Ballmer. Steve Ballmer and, you know, a- a- every single British, like, soccer owner. Like, they're all insane because you have to be insane to have this much money and, and use it like this in the first place. So th- this is just the cost of doing business when Steve Cohen is your owner. He's going to do stuff like have too many martinis, call his a reporter he's buddies with essentially and tell him hey we're signing Correa it's done we're gonna do it I'm the king now and then have it all fall apart because it turns out no there's actually a legitimate reason the Giants backed out on that like and the fact that they didn't say anything at all about why they backed out on it probably should have been a big honking red flag that it had something to do with something you can't talk about in public aka Correa's medicals so Yes, the Mets are the Mets and, and Steve Cohen are going to get an enormous grievance filed against them because Correa's agent, which I can remind you is Scott Boris, the most rapacious man alive, is going to argue quite successfully that Cohen, by announcing a contract with full details and then backing out of said contract before it was ever even really made official, caused serious, actionable harm to his client's financial well-being to the tune of something like, oh, I don't know, almost half the value of the entire deal went away. Like, mm-hmm. it should be noted, like, Correa's still getting a very good deal. It's 6, uh, 200. 200, 26, 200 even. Mm-hmm. And, like, with the options that, you know, assuming his right leg doesn't actually fall off between now and then, like, he, he can probably meet those options or meet the clauses for those options and walk away with something like, I think, $300 million ultimately over the course of, like, eight or nine years. So he's still getting, he should end up still getting his money. But he just lost a ton of guaranteed money because Steve Cohen drank too many martinis and mouthed off to a reporter from his vacation in Hawaii. Like, that is going to cost him a lot of money in exchange. 
And I mean, like again, like the rocker stuff, it that just can't happen, and it's one of those things that hampers the ability of this team to do business. It, although I will say, I have a and I this is a conspiracy theory that I have absolutely no proof for. That has it is just funny conjecture in my mind that the Mets intentionally tanked this this deal because mm-hmm. I think if if and for those who haven't seen the reported terms of what the Mets offer, it was also a six year deal worth. I think 180 million something, mm. and then every the following there was this six is my more favorite years. Part. Each of those years could on, was would only be guaranteed if Correa passed a physical before the start of every season. Which I'm assuming that when the mate when the when Boris and the Players Association saw that they both just kind of looked at each other and went, "Are you out of your mind?" Just I, I, that, or they just started laughing because again, that is something that no no agent, no player, no union would ever agree to is the right to have a contract unilaterally terminated if you fail a physical for which the that's Mets an can NFL make up, type thing. Like up, Steve Cohen yes. bought into the wrong sport. Yes, he. I think Steve Cohen is just now realizing that what being a baseball owner entails, which means every one of those dollars is guaranteed, my man. Every single last one of those dollars. Like, you cannot get around them. You cannot get out of paying them. Like, Mm-mm. you know, you have to give them over. So you either better have, A, really good insurance, which, I mean, all these teams have anyway, mm-hmm. or B, like, you need to not talk about the details of the contract in public. Like, I don't understand now with all this coming out and based on, like, the one year. And I get the nervousness of the one year at a time and, like, the physical stuff. Like, now we know there is a track record and there is some legitimate concern about Carlos Correa. It's weird because what he's being cited for in these physical stuff is it seems like something that he's literally never even missed time for. No, like the it, stuff it was that he's, an ankle yeah. injury he suffered eight years ago now at this point. Yeah. That the only discomfort he's had with it is he was tagged in a play in September last year mm. where the glove came down literally exactly on top of where they put a metal plate on his ankle and caused it to feel kind of numb and sore. That apparently is it. So and they're again, just banking on it being a problem years yes, from now I, or something. I think there's an assumption that the plate will cause problems enough down the road that Correa's mobility would be significantly impaired enough he would not, that he would no longer be able to play, I guess, at least third base and maybe just not even play at all. I mean, yeah. degenerative ankle conditions, degenerative any conditions are a problem. But but that's the thing. We don't know that Correa has any degenerative conditions. We don't even know exactly what he has. We just know but that he also, broke his like, ankle once this stuff should be coming and out. it's never been a problem. And that's, this- and that's other part of it, too. That's... That's also going to be part of the grievance, um, or at least I assume part of the grievance process, was that this should never have been disclosed in the first place. Mm-hmm. We, sh- we should not know why Correa did not sign a contract with the Giants and then subsequently did not sign a contract with the Mets. Like That, should, those inf- that information should never have gotten out because, again, it materially affected the value of his contract with the it Twins. It cost him a lot of money. It cost him a lot of money and a bit of long-term security. And while, again, I'm sure it'll be fine ultimately... Again, unless Correa's ankle actually is about to fall apart, which congrats now that everyone's going to be worrying about that from here to the end of time. Yeah, he's going to be asked about this forever. Forever. And that's the thing. His first, uh, no, he's going to have the single weirdest, like, first, (laughs) like, scrum of spring training. Like, everyone just crowding around him and going, so uh, he's going to have, and I'm curious actually how they're going to do this, but the entire Mets contingent is going to relocate from Port St. Lucie to... Actually, are the uh, I, assuming the Twins are still playing in Fort Myers, but I, I actually mm. don't know if that's the case after that huge hurricane that went through Florida hmm. uh, last year. But either way, um, the entire Twins contingent is going to relocate, or Mets contingent is going to relocate to Twins camp to bug him about this for like a week straight. 
To the point where I assume the, the, the twins are going to say he talks to you guys one time and then you do not ask him about it anymore or like you are not going to be allowed back in this clubhouse, which entirely. Well, the good thing is he's going to, to a market where I don't think it's going to be that heavy. It's going to be Aaron Gleeman and company just being no, like. No, I mean like the, the day-to-day <laughs> attention will be, and, and I'm sure because like he was there last year, he knows what it's like in Minnesota, There's or Minneapolis mm-hmm. rather. There's a good chance he probably liked it there. Minneapolis is, yeah. a, for the most part, it seems like a cool city with little cold. Uh, subpar weather or yeah. suboptimal weather in the winter at least but carlos gray doesn't have to be there in the winter he could spend the whole winter in puerto rico if he wants to and probably yeah. does like i too or and then he also gets to spend a good chunk of the winter in uh in florida like you know he can be in minneapolis when it's uh, either way and i'm sure that the the media market there is part of it too like granted twins fans can be as we saw with everything that happened with joe mauer and his sad decline well i don't even call it sad but the way his career ended and how particularly vociferous Twins fans were about how, oh, like, you know, he didn't, the, the, you know, after he got that big contract and then wasn't, you know, did not, I think, perform the way they expected, in large part because of all the injuries and concussions he suffered while playing catcher. You know, I, I guess for Correa's sake, I just hope that Twins, that this isn't going to be a repeat of that. You know, that, that his production doesn't take a step backward for some reason, and he doesn't have Twins fans going, it's his ankle, it's his ankle, it's his Can ankle. Can you imagine that if a... it was the Mets and this happened? Oh, dear God. Ima- yeah, imagine imagine the Mets had actually signed Correa. You know, they'd said, you know what, we 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 seen the ankle, whatever, we think it's something we can live with, and then he, he hits like 150 the first month of the season and plays like terribly at third base. Like, no, that, like, it, Carlos Correa's probably better off not having come here, honestly. I would agree. Like, either way, though, like, Yes, there will be they he and Scott Boris and the MLBPA will file a grievance against Steve Cohen. They will win or it will be settled because it's the one of, it's it's basically like handed it's been handed to the union on a platter. Mm-hmm. Um and this is just the cost of business of Steve Cohen being the owner of the Mets, which on the one hand, like he spent like seven hundred million of his own dollars this offseason to make this team a World Series contender. On the other hand, his big stupid mouth may have cost the Mets the ability to add Carlos Correa to that team. But why the only they reason just Carlos Correa do a one-year mega deal with a crazy AAV? Big, checkbook. I'm sorry, like, what? Why would they not have just done the one-year? Because basically, ba- what I'm get, gathering from the Mets side of things, it's like, why would you not just do the one, just only offer the one-year crazy AAV for Correa? And be because like, I, I doubt Correa would have taken it. Do you think so? I doubt, I'm certain. I'm sure Boris would have said, mm-hmm. absolutely not. We're going to take him back out on the market because we, you know, like, no. And, like, and the Twins went and proved it. They said, okay, yeah. if... And I, I assume six years was intentional on both their parts. I'm sure it reflects something with regards to the ankle or insurance or some actuarial thing that none of us are ever going to see, the, see or know the details of. They went from 11 of. to 6. Yeah, like, I mean, again, grievance. But yeah. uh, I have to assume that at the very least, all parties felt comfortable with Carlos Correa through age, like, 34 for whatever mm-hmm. reason, or, or however old exactly he'll be in, in six years, either I think 34 or 33 or 35, somewhere in that mm-hmm. range. And then after that was the part where everything got dicey. So I think that's the other thing for the Mets too. It's like they, a one-year deal was never going to work. They they did I think, you know, that like I said, both teams had essentially the same contract offer, just kind of differed as to how the the remaining years were going to be set up. Which is to say, one was functional and the other would never have happened. But you know, it does seem like six years was was what they all agreed upon, and it does feel like. It almost does feel like if that's the case for the Mets, I'd say, fine, 6 6 like, 2 8 like, whatever, just stay on the team. I think that's the part where I also don't really understand that idea of, like, again, if you've spent 750, if you spent three quarters of a billion dollars this offseason, essentially, what is, what is Correa on top of that? Which is why I was saying my conspiracy theory is the Mets front office tanked this deal intentionally because they didn't want Cohen to, to build a team like this. 
Hmm. They don't want him to go Steinbrenner. They want they want to be in charge of how of how free agents come to this team. They don't want those decisions being made by the owner drunk in Hawaii and then blabbed out to the press before they even have a chance to like do a physical essentially. Um, again, conspiracy theory, no proof. Would it shock you though if the nerds decided they had to sabotage this ex- this giant expenditure if they felt this team's already good enough? That is such a Mets thing too. It would like, be. Again, it's conspiracy theory, but it's a fun one. It's it's a fun one, folks. Do you think Either this way, means they focus on Machado next winter? Because that's something I saw immediately. I mean, that's, after. that was the we tried leak that came out mm-hmm. immediately after. Which the timing of that one is just <laughs> hysterical, too. Absolutely excellent work by either Cohen or someone in the Mets front office. Mm-hmm. Just immediately like jumping on that. Actually, we wanted made. Machado all along. Which and and look, I think Machado's going to opt out next season anyway because there's just no reason for him not to. Unless something goes terribly wrong this year, he he will make more money with a new contract than he pres- than he would under whatever the terms of his old one are. Hmm. And I assume the Mets will be players in that market because, you know, their third base duo right now, it's it's Eduardo Escobar and Brett Batty or, or some combination of those two and maybe someone else, maybe the Mets. I don't know, maybe they go out looking for a trade at this point. You know, maybe they see, you know, if we agree to take 80% of Anthony Rendon's contract, will the Angels not ask for anything significant in return kind of thing? You know, I don't, like, I'm not saying that's a good idea on the Mets part, but you know, that's the kind of thing I imagine they'd be looking at right now is, okay, well, we're not going to sign anyone that, you know, we don't, there aren't really any obvious trade candidates on the market right now. Can we pay to take someone else's expensive player off their hands? You know, Rendon, Javi Baez, someone on along those lines. But e- either way, like the Mets, I don't know. I, I can see them being players for Machado next winter, if only because I don't know that Batty is a long-term a solution at third base for them. I think part of what they're going to try to figure out, and th- this is the hard part because they're going to have to try to figure it out in the midst of a very tight division race with a lot of expectations, is whether or not Batty can be that guy, you know, depending either on spring training or early in the season, or whether it just makes more sense to put Escobar there and just hope for the best. Hmm. Um, but either way, like I-, I can see them being involved in Machado next year for sure. I, I don't know the rest of the third base market off the top of my head, but I'd have to assume no matter who else is available. And I guess that's the thing. The other bat that presumably they would have been in on, as everyone else would have been in on, that would have been the top of that market next year is now off the market in Rafael Devers because of the big extension he signed with the Red Sox. So I assume, and I'm just going to take a quick look because why not, um, that I'm assuming that Machado will be the top option at, the, at third base. Yeah, I'm, t- I'm taking a look now. Do, 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 do. Yeah, so Matt Chapman will be there too, uh, and that's pretty much it. I mean, yeah. Uh, unless Josh Donaldson has the comeback season from, which no, that's gonna be very funny. Yeah, it, and Chapman obviously is older than Machado, not as good a hitter as Machado, probably a better defender. But at this, but that's saying not that much because Machado is already a very good defender. Chapman is just the best at the position. Mm. Um, yeah, I, 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 I see them being in on Machado next year. I think that makes a ton of sense. And because, again, the only thing Machado is going to cost is money. And Steve Cohen has an ungodly amount of it. Um, I just find it kind of weird that they let the Korea deal fall apart this way. Because, again, they didn't necessarily need him. But it's also a, a good thing to have Carlos Correa on your team versus not. And the Twins are the, the big proof of that. Like, they went from a team I don't think a whole lot of people necessarily would have been picking to win the Central. I think probably... I think once once predictions start happening, I think most people are probably going to go with Cleveland to repeat, followed by Minnesota, followed by, I would guess, the White Sox, although I think that says less about the White Sox and uh, more about the rest of the AL Central. 
But I, I think Minnesota is now pretty comfortably right there with Cleveland in terms of contending for that division. Like, Correa is that huge a, an upgrade for them. Like, they were going to start the season with Kyle Farmer at shortstop, barring a, some other move. Like, the upgrade from Correa to Farmer, is in, that's like six or seven wins a year, you know? That is enormous. And obviously not just to have him this year, but next year and the year after that and the year after that. Like, they now have a long-term piece lockdown. You know, this guy... And again, one of the situations where it's saying less about Correa and more about the franchise as a whole, there's a good chance that when Carlos Correa's contract is done in Minnesota, he's going to be the greatest twin shortstop of all time, or at least hmm. be regarded statistically as such. Like, that's not nothing. Like, the Twins have locked in a very, very, very good player for the next six seasons to get him through what's left of his prime at a time when they have some very good young talent and also some other you know, quality veterans on that team. I don't really love what Minnesota's done this offseason otherwise, which is to say I don't really think they've done anything this offseason otherwise. Mm -hmm. And their pitching staff still feels at least an arm or two short, but Correa coming back is just so huge for them. They're instant division contenders again with him back. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Is Do you think that they are now the favorites? How much does this flip the AL Central? I don't necessarily know if it flips it. I think if before it would have been like 60, let's say it was 55 Cleveland, uh, 45 Minnesota, or maybe say 55 Cleveland, 40 Minnesota, 5 Chicago. Let's say those. Chicago that low. If, if you looked at that White Sox roster, it is no way, no man. Like, yeah. no way. Um, Hmm. which is also like there is no depth on that every uh, not to take too big a white Sox tangent but everyone on for that team to be good this year everyone needs to be healthy and i'm not really sure where the the faith in that comes from because they have a lot of guys who've had a lot of injury issues uh repeatedly over the last few years but i'm just betting maybe i'm betting too much on a, t a post tony la Russa bump <laughs> just the vibes Look, are better it, yeah i would i'm gonna bet on that too in the sense i think mm. that will be a much happier place to play but yeah. i i think and I think, again, if everyone on that team stays healthy, that's that team has the highest ceiling in the division, I think, bar mm -hmm. none. Um, I just don't see it happening consistently because that team just, one, doesn't make good trades and, and, and signings for the most part, and two, has not done a particularly good job developing its farm system. Like they, They're not adding talent in a, in a manner which I feel comfortable saying they're a real contender. That was kind of convoluted. But either way, so let's say pre-Korea was... What did I say? 55 Cleveland, or let's say uh, 55 Cleveland, let's say 50 Cleveland, 40 uh, Minnesota, 10 Chicago. Let's call it that. Okay. I'd say now it's probably closer to like 50 Cleveland, 45 Minnesota, like five Chicago. You know what hmm. I mean? Like I think Cleveland is probably still the favorite, but I think the odds have narrowed. Or maybe you could call it like 48 Cleveland and like 43. For Minnesota or something and Chicago basically stays the same or goes to 12 whatever it is like um I think those are probably I think you're you're they're probably going to be co-equal favorites when it comes to people making predictions um obviously offseason still has a little bit to go we're not entirely done yet but uh again but it's that's how big a difference Korea makes you know I think he is at the very least like a he, he moves the needle on the twins winning the division by like multiple points I think I like it um John Taylor Yes. Nashville, are they getting an expansion team? Is this happening? I mean, why not, ultimately? You they tell really me. Wanna... You're, the, you're the local Tennessean. You tell me why Nashville should or should not have a Major League Baseball team. I just don't think there's an appetite. Like, you look around, there's just so... Like, this is Braves country still. Like, not to the degree... Mm -hmm. You and I were texting about this earlier this week. Um, I think the South... And, I mean, part of what makes this, I guess, a little bit more feasible is just that, like the superstation is no longer a thing like mm -hmm. the braves just 
created so many fans. The reason it became America's team in the 90s was just because of TBS and um, obviously being really good and winning the division over and over again helps. But like, I just, I think there are so many fans entrenched here and a lot of folks from Georgia moved up to Tennessee and a lot of transplants from Atlanta to Nashville to get away from some traffic and also still mm-hmm. do the big city. Like, I don't know. You have the Smokies here, which is a Cubs uh, AA affiliate that I go to a lot. So there's a lot of Cubs fans in Tennessee if they're not uh, Braves fans. And then over in Memphis, you have the Redbirds. So you have uh, a AA or maybe single A. I don't know. What is uh, Memphis Redbirds? What are they for? Uh, the they're Cardinals? AA. Yeah. Um, so they're the Cardinals. So that you have the Cardinals fans in Memphis. So you're not getting them either. I just, I don't know if you're going to have the kind of fan turnout that you're expecting because like nashville sc was a hit and is a hit for them the titans obviously there was a market for that in the south like it's just you're always gonna be able to succeed with um moves like that in the 90s and then i i just i don't know this is kind of like putting a basketball team in nashville where i'm like i just don't think there's that appetite for nba basketball in nashville i also don't know if there's that appetite for another major league baseball team down there i just i don't think you're gonna well, have th- that fan support you're I gonna have to that- have them to drop fans like they're gonna have to drop being braves fans and i don't see that happening well i think that's a good argument at the very least for i, I can understand so and, and the i'm glad you pointed out tbs because that makes a ton of sense that it was like that network having the ability to broadcast braves games basically all over the entire country made braves fans at a time when the braves were good too mm. made braves fans out of places that are in places that you would never have expect not never expected to see them but would like it made it made fans of places you wouldn't expect and it also strengthened bonds in places like Nashville which is geographically close enough and has no other real competition. Yep. So I I do wonder though if there's a sense that since that no longer exists since that TV market obviously no longer exists TBS does not broadcast Braves games nationally anymore you know if you're an MLB fan living in Nashville more off like that's that's it's, here's another way of looking at it. If you're an MLB fan living in Nashville, are mm-hmm. you blacked out of Braves games on MLB on MLB uh, TV? It's a good question. I don't know. Because that I mean that's part. Like think about it this way: if you're an, if you're a baseball fan in Nashville who does not have cable, you you can't watch Braves games. How are you? Like you you don't have that same reach of them into your home unless you are a cable subscriber. Um, you know, I, I wonder if there is a feeling there that there is a tappable market because it's like, you know, all the older Braves fans who did grow up in that, like with the Braves and just glommed onto the Braves are not as much of a thing. In, or they're, you know, that that cohort is getting smaller mm-hmm. and a younger cohort that didn't really develop that kind of regional slash TV market link with the Braves has, you know, there's an opportunity there to be like, you know, you don't have to root for the Braves. We have a team now right here in Nashville. I will say, like, I find Nashville kind of curious because there are, I think, bigger areas ahead of it that you would probably expect to see in this conversation more. Like, looking up just a list of, like, the biggest um, American metro areas, like, the largest one that does not currently have a Major League Baseball team is the Charlotte metro area, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Like, look, I don't think there's going to be a baseball team in Charlotte for a variety of reasons. I I just, I don't really see the, I, I don't really see how you'd, I don't know, I, I, but I do think some of it, and I wonder how much of it is tied to the fact, like when we, as we were talking about it over text, like, is there really an appetite for more Major League Baseball in the South, where you already have college baseball, where you already have a ton of minor league baseball, and which is not to say that if you put Major League Baseball there, those folks are going to go, eh, we already have baseball, we're not interested, but it's a different kind of interest, I think, in baseball that is more 
it kind of feels similar to the whole college football NFL thing for me in the South, where it's like that is its own distinct culture and attraction that professional sports obviously can do better than air quotes. But, you know, I, I, you I mean, know, I don't seen how popular Mississippi baseball is like Mississippi state, Southern miss old well, miss. I'm, like, I'm just even thinking like, even when it comes to Nashville, like the Titans yeah. versus, you know, the university of Tennessee or yeah. the poor souls who have to root for Vanderbilt. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure there are more, I'm sure there are more and more diehard Tennessee volunteer fans. than there are Tennessee Titans fans in the city of Nashville. Yeah. Like that feels like a really safe bet to me. And it's like, yeah. The, the Titans are still fine. I mean, they were, they're not going to make the playoffs this year, but they were the number one seed the year before. And they seem to draw enough people that, you know, to make it all worth their while. But like, I don't, I don't know. There, there it's are not going to feel of, like Kansas city with the chiefs or anything. No. And I, I don't think that the, the folks in Nashville would necessarily expect that, but I do wonder if they feel like there is an opening that market because that's the other half of it is the only MLB team in the South is the Braves. Yeah. That's it. Like there, no one is no, like, you know, the teams in Florida don't count. And, you know, there's no there's no team in New Orleans. There's no team in Memphis. There's no team in uh, in in well, I guess Jacksonville is spiritually the south. So I'm going to call it the south. Uh, there's no North team Florida in the is basically the south. Like North is, Florida yeah. is the south. North Florida is the south. You know, there's there's no team in, in the Carolinas. There's no team in the Ozarks. You know, the, the south, which the Ozarks are not the south. But in terms of like New Orleans actually makes more sense to me outside of the worry about flooding and just natural well, New disaster Orleans, New Orleans is also a small metro area like it, it's smaller than Salt but Lake they care City. about it's baseball about as big as Buffalo LSU is no, preseason number one in baseball they are a baseball heavy market like I would like I said with Mississippi in that area like they love college baseball they love baseball I actually think New Orleans would bring out a pretty healthy fan base I think you would actually I, I mean, be able I to think, do it I think the fan base would be cool I just think that it's a smaller it, slice but I think yeah, it'd be that, a more passionate is, slice. I think I, you'd actually think, have passionate fans. I think MLB would rather go after bigger slices of the pie, which is why, and and this is a, a, a town I brought up to you that is, I think, the, the most likely to end up with an expansion team if and when expansion happens mm. is Portland. Uh, hmm. Behind Charlotte, or so the, the, the biggest markets without a baseball team, the biggest metropolitan areas without a baseball team, you have Charlotte, mm. uh, followed by Orlando, which... I mean, for all we know, the Rays could just end up relocated there at some point. Although there are more people in Tampa, in Tampa and St. Pete than there are in Orlando. So, mm. um, regardless, uh, San Antonio, which, sure. I mean, I, I, I wonder if that's something that the Astros and Rangers would say. No, Texas yeah, is ours it's not already. Happened. Kind of similar to like, oh, but you know, the New York, New, the New York, New Jersey metro area could take a third team. Yeah, the Mets and Yankees would never let that happen. Nor would the Phillies, for that matter, because they are mm-hmm. the unofficial third team of the New York, New Jersey metro area. Um, so then you have, and then right after San Antonio is Portland, mm-hmm. and you know, Portland. I think you know they, they've been agitating for a baseball team for a while. They have a very long history of minor league baseball there. Uh, you have the immediate instant rivalry built in with Seattle that I think MLB would love to try to emulate the success of MLS uh, with their Seattle-Portland rivalry that's been really good uh, and that really we don't have in any of the other major sports since the Sonics left, you know. Mm. Um, I think, you know, there are, the, there are certain downsides to Portland. Obviously, the distance, you know, Seattle's already a very long trip for the rest of the league. Portland is not any closer, obviously. And, you know, as far as as far as metropolitan areas go, it's not, you know, again, it's about the same size as San Antonio, which is kind of the other thing about expansion is there aren't really any large markets left that don't have baseball, where it's just kind of a honking obvious why is there not a baseball team here kind of thing. Mm. You know, I think every city we bring up, you know, you brought up New Orleans, I just brought up Portland, you know, uh, 
Columbus, or no, Columbus has basically. Well, Columbus is a is a big city, but you know, Cleveland is right there, so that that wouldn't necessarily work. I like, just, yeah, I don't Sacramento, know. Sacramento, Las Vegas, Austin, like all of these cities. Vegas is just have, getting the A's, so we can just pan- pencil them in. Like, yeah, just, I mean, whenever they just which, get sold, it's just, they're getting moved to and, and Vegas. This, but this is the other part of expansion too: is that if you let in one team, you need to let in two to keep the league balanced right. in terms of the number of teams. So it can't just be Nashville. It would presumably have to be Nashville and Portland, or it'd have to be mm. Nashville and Montreal, or it'd have to, whatever it happens to be. You know, Montreal just seems like they're waiting on Tampa Bay. Like they're just yeah, waiting on them to I, just move. Which this is team. the other other part of this is that in the A's and the Rays, MLB already has two franchises that are effectively homeless. You know, yes, that, that they are looking to either get a new stadium for or relocate. And I think until that stuff gets resolved, expansion can't really be on the table right now. I think mm-hmm. it will happen eventually because ultimately, expansion uh, expansion is just so lucrative for the league and for owners who they you know because. Obviously, new teams have to pay a fee to enter the league, and that number is astronomically huge at this point. You know, this adding two teams to the league would bring in billions of dollars for the current ownership groups in MLB as well as the league itself. Plus, they get to they get to have two new teams, and that's and you know the PA would obviously I think be happy with that as well to add two teams worth of players. But obviously, a whole big theoretical conversation. I just don't think it can happen until the A's and Rays get their situations resolved. Because I think you're right that it does seem like the A's at this point, it, relocation is kind of inevitable, um, barring, a t- barring a change in ownership. But, you know, if it is going to be Las Vegas they go to, well, then that eliminates one potential expansion city. And then depending on where the Rays go, that might eliminate another as well. Or they may decide, you know, again, that might be something where it's do we just have to wait for ownership to change before they can agree to build something here. But either way, I, I can see the appeal for Nashville, though. It is a growing metropolitan area. It is popular with young people. It is, I think, far enough away from Atlanta that there probably is that feeling that you can pull away some kind of more casual Braves fans or folks who just grew up there and just don't really have any feelings about the Braves or really about any MLB team in general. You know, as long as you can sell the experience of come to Nashville, like, man, just think of all the awful bachelorette and bachelor parties that are going to be going through a Nashville Major League Baseball game. Just an, just an unpleasant time, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think my... You know, there obviously are questions, I think, about the size of the market. I think also the size of the media market, because, I, you know, I, I don't know how much appetite there is for watching Major League Baseball in Tennessee, you know, on, on you know, or given where it exists in the sports calendar, you know. Yeah. If nothing else, they'll have something in the summer. But, you know, in the fall, in the spring, when people are paying attention to college sports, when people are paying attention to football, you know are they really going to care so much about major league baseball? I don't know. And it just reminds me of like when the NHL just keeps trying to make the South happen for their leagues. And they're just like, and and that one I think is more understandable because they don't have any history of like the Braves to go up against, you know, the, yeah. the, the South was a completely untapped market and the rust, Be- not the rust belt, sorry, the Sun Belt mm. as well. And it made perfect sense for MLB to see, or MLB for NHL to see, Eh, why don't we see if these people actually like hockey? There are transplants mm. here, and there's literally no other hockey. So if you like hockey, guess what? Now you got a team. Um, it's definitely a harder road for baseball, in particularly in the South. And I think that's something you're going to see, like when you, when again going through that list of metro of major metropolitan areas that don't have baseball teams. And I think every case, with the exception of uh, Portland and vegas and and then you really have to start going further down the line places like you know jacksonville or oklahoma city like it it makes sense that it's like they don't have a team so it's well you have other options or there have been other options here like if you're in san antonian san antonio white san, An- mm. san if you're a san anthony 
Um, <laughs> you're not wondering why don't we have a baseball team because you probably, if you like baseball, picked between the Rangers and the Astros a long time ago, you know? Or you just were like, well, those are my options. I don't need a third option. I'm happy with, with the two options I have. Would the people of San Antonio welcome a baseball team? Eh, probably. Do mm. they need a baseball team? I don't know. I, I think that's what MLB has to figure out is like, does it make actual real sense for any of these markets where you can kind of explain in almost every case why they don't have a baseball team suddenly to give them a baseball team besides, well, the population's getting a little bigger. Absolutely. Uh, John Taylor. Yes. I got a story for you. Okay. Oh, no. This is... I, this is <laughs> what? How? How did I not you just immediately... I even told you before the pod. Oh, I had I something I, for you. Uh, I knew it was the bit, but I just I didn't know that was just going to be the bit. Oh. <laughs> oh, got a story boy. for you, John. Yeah. Of the Trevor variety. Oh, boy. He's out. He's out. Again. Again. Poof. Yeah. That Raphael Devers being bullied into a, a long-term contract for John Henry after getting booed at the... Um, at the... What is it? Winter Wednesday, Classic. Winter Classic. Yeah, he was thank like, "Thank you, I, thank you, Bruins fans who showed up for that." Just a couple weeks too right late. Thing. That's a great just, what if. Yeah, I mean, ideally, it's it's weird. Ideally, that we now it happens have to... before the Xander Bogart signing happens. Also weird that Henry was there not because of Fenway, but because I've forgotten that Fenway Sports Group owns the Penguins. I just yeah. randomly forgotten that John Henry also happens to own the Pittsburgh Penguins. Which very strange. Are are Penguins fans also mad about the team's state of, about the team's no, finances good. or spending? Nah, no, they're good. Okay, the I, Penguins I are, I, just feel like immune to any like whatever. Okay. They're just always I, good in hockey. Like I, I know nothing. Like the NHL is is one of those blind spots that it's like you know I, I literally just do not under know or understand any of it, aside from the fact that it exists. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the Trevor story stuff and boy, oh John. So he's. <laughs> So with this whole news that he needs elbow surgery to get an internal brace put in, which is basically like a kind of, um, it, it's related to Tommy John surgery, but it's not Tommy John surgery. It's something different where instead of reconstructing the ligament, they just kind of put some tape around it or like, and make it steadier. Mm. It, it's essentially for ligaments that haven't fully torn or that are only partially damaged. Anyway, the recovery time for that usually is like four to six months. The Red Sox are floating, as you know, they said in, in Heimblum's press conference, you know, that there's a possibility story doesn't return this season, which I hope that's not the case, but it certainly can be. You know, elbow arm injuries are tricky, especially for a guy who, when he comes back, will be plugged into the shortstop role and be told, hey, just full max effort on every throw from here on out, man. Good luck. Um, so that's all bad, obviously. Um that he's going to be out at least until Especially because Jeter Downs is out now. <sighs> God. For like, who's playing shortstop for the Met or for the Red Sox on opening day? Kike Hernandez? <sighs> uh, someone who... Elvis Andrus? Jose Iglesias? <laughs> like, hey, pause off Elvis Andrus, I, John Taylor. That is um, Braves opening a, day shortstop, look, Elvis Andrus. The top of the shortstop depth chart right now internally in Boston is Kike Hernandez, who is also <laughs> supposed to be the starting center fielder. Mm-hmm. So that's also bad. Um... What I find most frustrating about all of this is something that I feel is just symptomatic of, of Bloom's tenure in Boston, mm. which is the only reason Story is here is because when he left Colorado, the constant, constant uh, through line was his arm is messed up. He's, his, his throws from shortstop have become erratic. His velocity, his, his arm strength has gone down notably and is not recovering. 
Like, there is very clearly something wrong with his arm. Probably his elbow, you know? That is not just going to go away because he rests it, you know? That, that just does not work that way. Like, no. He lasted until, what, the beginning of, uh, of March, I believe, in, in the offseason when he signed last year? Mm. And, and some of that was the lockout just messing up the timing of the offseason, but... Trevor Story sat on the free agent market for quite a while. Buster only tweeted about that today. He said that some teams passed on Story in the spring of 2022 because they felt like the major elbow surgery was inevitable. Yes, and look at that. They were correct. And, and yep. I, I, I mean, I'm, I don't, we obviously don't know who Buster is speaking of there, but like, that was a winter when shortstop... Like, I know that you know Correa was available, Corey Seager was available, but the consensus was, okay, well, the third best shortstop on the market is Trevor Story. And yeah. the third best shortstop on the market should do better than six years and $140 million and also being told, okay, you're the second baseman now. He was very clearly not capable of playing shortstop, at least without something like this happening. It was very, very obvious. The fact that multiple teams just looked at him in that winter and went, nope that he lasted as long as he did. The Boston was able to get him for what, at the time, felt like a pretty good deal in terms of the, the financial value of it. I think everyone looked at it and went, yeah, that's a pretty good price for Trevor Story if Trevor Story plays like Trevor Story, which is, I just said Trevor Story a lot, but... Yeah. What they also bothers, offered him $50 million more than Xander Bogarts last spring. Which, oh boy, that's <laughs> a part of this. I'm which sorry, is, John. It's, it's, and that's the part of this, is that Trevor Story is in Boston in part because his elbow lowered, his, his bulky elbow lowered his, the price he would cost to make it so that Boston, which is for whatever damn reason decided it does not feel like spending money anymore past a certain amount, mm. was like, okay, now we can afford him. They, they picked up a dented can on the floor of the supermarket and went, well, now that this is way more affordable for me, not d despite the fact that the can is obviously dented. But that's not the worst part to me isn't that the, the worst part to me is that he was brought in to play second base with the obvious and like and now in retrospect it is very very obvious he was the backup plan to xander bogart's leaving he was plan b if bogart's walked for whatever reason it's obvious now because of the fact that his arm was hurt in part because he was he was starting to work do work training for to, to return to shortstop and clearly felt his arm no longer could do the job and had to get surgery, clearly it was, it was bothering him to a certain degree. It's obvious that their plan B internally this whole time was, Xander's gone? All right, we'll just give, all right, Trevor, you're the shortstop again. They signed a guy whose arm was no longer allowing him to play shortstop with the intention of eventually making him the shortstop after they underbid the guy who was already at shortstop and who was the perfectly good shortstop that they didn't need to replace. Their decision to get cheaper, to, or their decision to try to save some money, to try to exploit the financial value of Trevor Story's elbow isn't as good, now we get him at a discount price, without then using that money saved to take care of the... Oh, it's, too, it's, it's one of those things where it's too cute by half. It, it's, this is what happens when the goal of the team isn't to win baseball games, but to save money in the process of winning baseball games. That's how you end up in this idiotic situation. It's not Bloom's fault that Trevor Story's elbow is, is dog meat, apparently. That's not his fault. This bad stuff happens. But the fact that bad stuff seems to continually happen to this team on a regular basis, and that every time the team's reaction is, well, crap, one seems to suggest that the things that are leading them to this place were not well thought out, that the process is bad. And two, the response suggests that the process also suggests that the process is bad. 
You should not be in a position where on Janu in, it's January and you just do not have a shortstop. And not just don't have one. Your options are Elvis Andrews and Jose Iglesias or trading for like Joey Wendell. And that guy might have to be the starter all season. And you could have avoided this from the start if you had simply paid the all-star homegrown shortstop who wanted to stay there. If you had just given him money, money that the owner has in, in buckets everywhere, just laying around his giant mansion wherever John Henry lives. All they had to do was give him money. And again, Xander Bogart's being paid 280 freaking million dollars by a team that did not need a shortstop. Look, sometimes life throws you curveballs, man, and especially in baseball. But they could have avoided that point. You know what they could have done instead of giving 140 million dollars to Trevor Story and his messed up elbow? Added that money to whatever they were going to offer Xander Bogarts and just said, hey, man, we're going to keep you here forever. And they didn't. And now they're in this position where their middle infield next, on opening day might literally be Christian Arroyo and Kike Hernandez. That is terrible. That is absolutely terrible. And they only have themselves to blame for being here. They signed a guy with a messed up elbow, knowing he was not capable of playing... Or, or, or they signed a guy with a messed up elbow who was no longer capable of playing shortstop and decided once they lost their shortstop by underbidding him to put the guy who couldn't play shortstop at shortstop and he immediately got hurt. You, you, like, why? What are you doing? How? How does it get to this point? How can you not, like, the lack of foresight and planning when it comes to the major league team from this front office is, is just baffling. I don't understand it. I don't understand... There are so many decisions they make where you just sit there and go, why did they do that? It's like watching someone who's sitting at a red light when it turns green just hit reverse instead. You're like, why on earth did you do that? <laughs> it was obvious what you should have done. Why did you do the wrong thing? Like, this is, none of this stuff is rocket science, I don't feel like. I don't feel like it's crazy to think that instead of signing Trevor Story, who granted is a very good player, but who very clearly was not fully healthy, they should have just given that money to Xander Bogarts. And then they wouldn't be in this situation. And forget even being in this situation, they would just be a better team overall. You, you cannot sit here and tell me, no one can sit here and tell me, that the Red Sox are better off with, with Trevor Story versus Xander Bogarts for the remainder of whatever's left for either of their careers at this point. And that's, and I'm not saying the Red Sox should have given Xander Bogarts 11 years and $280 million. That's an insane amount of money. But hey, 10 to, 10 to 50 wouldn't have gotten this thing done? 9 to 30? I, I really think like the opportunity was there. It was very clearly there. It had been there for years, just like it had been there with Mookie Betts. And both times ownership decided instead of doing the obvious smart thing, which is paying the elite player to stay there, let's find a way to get slightly cheaper and noticeably worse at the same time. It is such, it is, I keep saying it, it is Rays shit. It is Tampa Bay Rays bullshit. Except as we're seeing, the Rays bullshit only works if you have a stupidly good farm system and player development group to go along with it. Boston does not have those things, so they cannot do Rays stuff. And that's why, and I think you're seeing, you saw something similar with San Francisco. That's why these teams don't function steadily on any kind of like regular basis. That's how you have a team that wins 91 games and is two, win, two wins from a World Series finish last the year after that. Similarly with that San Francisco team, they went from 107 wins to just absolute garbage.
because there is a, a fixation and a, and a hyper focus on we cannot spend even more than one dollar past these projections. We must be disciplined and strict on this budget. That doesn't work unless you have a lot of cheap, good players. And it takes time to get those guys. So you have to do something in the interim. And the choice is either, well, we just spend a little less and we get a crappy 81-win team out of it, or screw it, we just spend anyway because there are a bunch of cheap guys coming. We don't have to worry about how much they cost. Pay the expensive guys now and, and keep winning. Oh, my God. I, oh, my God. I just... I'm. What are you going to do with that money when you die, John Henry? Where's it going to go? What's the point? What is the point of it all? Build yourself a pyramid. I guess it's better than having a winning baseball team. You don't have a winning anything right now. This is the most sports radio, like, oh, my God. I, this is great. Give me, give me my WEI slot now. I'm, I'm apparently ready. I just got to get my accent worked out. All right, I'm 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 ready for it. Give me your Boston accent. No, it's it's just it's gonna be terrible. I'm too worked up now. Okay. It's, it's gonna not. it's gonna be it's gonna be Matt Damon and Goodwill Hunting. Mm. No, even of, even worse, it's gonna be Alec Baldwin in The Departed. <sighs> you know who had the worst Boston accent in that movie, which makes no sense to me? Mark Wahlberg. He sounded like he was putting one on, like you do at a party or something. Like mm. I'm like you're from you're literally from Quincy. You mm. have no excuse. Like why do you sound why do you sound like this? Why do you sound like Peter Griffin? Yeah. <laughs> I'm the guy who does his job. You must be the other guy. It's great, though. He had some bangers in that movie. Um, Mark, I mean, that's the kind of role Marky Mark should only ever play is a grieved, stupid cop. Like, he, he nailed that one. He was The like, other guys. Yeah, exactly. Same. It, you, you let him play someone who's in a position of authority but does not deserve it. Like, mm -hmm. he, it, it's him and... Uh, oh, my God. I'm blanking on the, on the actor's name. Kenny Powers. Oh yeah, uh, not John C. Uh, wow, why am I blanking on his name? He's so good at everything. Um, this is bad. Why wow. am I blanking on his name? Oh my goodness. This is bad. Righteous gemstones. Yeah. Oh my goodness. How, Danny Apologies McBride. For, there we go. Yeah, Danny McBride. Yeah. There you go. Mark Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg missed his his chance to be like essentially Danny McBride in comedies, which he has been. But like, it's that same thing where just that 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 anger comes from such a pure stupid place. It's amazing. But anyway. Uh, Yes, the, the Trevor Story stuff is bad. I, I you know, it's, it's obviously very bad for the Red Sox. Their middle, middle infield is going to be terrible almost no matter what they do, uh, barring some miracle trade that they don't have the assets to pull off. Uh, yeah, I whatever optimism you had after the after the the Devers extension, and, and granted, like the Devers extension was a very good move that they had to make, and it was smart, and blah 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 blah. I like the Devers extension. You will hear no complaints from me about that. The only complaint is, why did it take till number three to do this? Like, yeah. where were the other two? That optimism is gone. Because this team, this team's offense is going to stink. It is going to be terrible, barring, uh, barring Yoshida being uh, uh, just an Ichiro-level impact from the jump and Justin Turner having discovered the fountain of youth. Like, or Tristan Cass is having an incredible... They, there are a lot of ifs now for that lineup when it comes to performance that make you feel like, no, this is not a team that's going to score runs consistently. Which is also good because they're also not a team that's going to prevent runs consistently. So... Um, oh, boy. Man. Positive will end here. AJ Pollock. I like Pollock. He should be Pollock. AJ, <laughs> AJ Pollock. Pollock. Uh, AJ Pollock signing with the M's. They've had a quietly fine offseason. Um, he I mean, signs it, with them. Conforto to the Giants. Those two outfield signings, like, hey, they're fine. 
in a I, vacuum, I mean, you're fine. I think the Mariners, I think it's been a fine offseason, and, and I, I didn't really like their offseason, but I, I read something from Ben Clemens in his, in his weekly Fangraphs chat where someone asked about uh, Pollock and the Mariners, and his response was, if they had done the Luis Castillo extension this winter as opposed to uh, hmm. before the end of the season, I think a lot of people will be looking at the Mariners offseason differently because they essentially just did that early. They had an offseason yeah. kind of early. They traded for Castillo and then they extended him, you know? Mm. And I, I don't necessarily, I mean, I think, I mean, obviously if a thing happened at another time, yes, we would consider things differently. But, you know, at, I, I do think that Ben does, it, that Ben does overall has a, has the right point, which is that the Mariners did do a very significant thing in extending Castillo. Um, mm. That was, you know, that was great. Um, I do think though, that there's more they could have done. And I think Second base probably is one of those areas where they traded for Colton Wong, which is fine, but also one of those things where it's like, yeah, I mean, there were other options we could have gone with here, I think. You know, there was a possibility to do something more. And I think similarly um, with a guy like Pollock, instead of actively adding like a full-time regular starting outfielder, you know? And I understand Pollock is not that guy. He is there, I think, mostly uh, as both Jared Kalenic, as a Jared Kalenic platoon mate, sorry, and also, I think, as Jared Kalenic insurance, because, and, and this is part of, I think, what the problem in Seattle has been, because I think there was an expectation, particularly, that a guy like Kalenic would be a large part of what Seattle was doing right now, and instead, he has been one of their bigger question marks and concerns. You know, I, I think that there's the idea, too, that's like, okay, well, if, if Kalenic doesn't work out, at least we got Pollock sitting here, you know, he's a guy we know can at least handle what he's doing, et, et cetera. But, I mean, that, that outfield right now, and I know they got Teoscar Hernandez, which I, I like that trade for Seattle a lot, but... He's not someone who should be playing the outfield regularly. I don't think he's got a big arm, but he does not have a lot of range. You've got Kalenic and left right now, and as I just went through, you know, he had strikeout issues, you know, a, a six ways to Sunday that he is, seems to be in the process of figuring out. But obviously, there's no guarantee that works out, and the, you know, these things take time, et cetera, et cetera. I, you know, I think he's a major question mark for them. Obviously, Julio Rodriguez, zero questions there. He's the he's the he's the Lamb of God. He is the best thing that's ever happened. But I think you'd have genuine concerns defensively in in the corners with in the corner with Teoscar Hernandez. You have a genuine concern with Kalenic overall, and you're only one injury away to either of those guys to Pollock being a full time regular outfielder. Like that's right now he's I mean right now he's the full time regular DH. Um, I assume there is going to be some because the Mariners don't seem to understand what a DH is or you know what it's there for that they're just going to rotate guys like Tom Murphy and Dylan Moore and Sam Haggerty in that position and. You know, designated hitter Sam Haggerty is a really funny thought. Um, you know, or maybe they, you know, they play Cal Raleigh at DH and let Tom Murphy catch. But, you know, th they still feel a bat short. Mm -hmm. And Pollock, I think, helps in a limited way, but not in enough of a way where I feel like you're still a bat short. And worse, now you think you're no longer a bat short because the thinking is, oh, well, now we have A.J. Pollock, and he's a perfectly competent major league hitter. He did not look good for Chicago last year. You know, there, there was not a whole lot I think to like about the AJ Pollock experience in Chicago. Um, yeah, I, I feel like ultimately I just feel like the Mariners were a bat short. I don't know necessarily where they would have gotten that bat. I don't, you know, Aaron Judge. I think I was obviously the the biggest impact they could have gotten, and I don't think they were ever realistically in play for him. But yeah, I, I it just feel they feel a bat short right right now to me. But we'll see. They made the playoffs this past year. Um, I think they'll be in good position to make it again. And then they also, Jerry DePoto, likes to make trades. So I think uh, just keep an eye on them <laughs> this summer, depending on how their season starts. And we'll have to see what the Rangers look like, too. Like, that's yeah. the other part of this. They're the wild card in the AL West, where it's like, if they take a big step forward, I wonder what that means for 
the teams like the Mariners because the A's are going to be just historically awful. But the Astros, there's no path for them to be bad. Like, I think they're going to be, at least for the next couple of years, like, regardless of the instability at the top, like, that doesn't affect them in 2023. That'll affect them in 2025, 2026, and stuff like that. The Astros still do not have a general manager, do they? They do not. So that is just Jim Crane running the show right now. All right, good luck to everybody in Houston. (laughs) That is just Jim Crane taking phone calls from Craig Biggio and Jeff Bagwell and being like, hire this man. Like, that, Mm -hmm. that is... Which, again, not a great strategy. It's going to come back to bite them in three years, but this roster is just all set for this year. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Houston right now is kind of in a set-it-and-forget-it place, but I I think you're right that in the future – forget in the future. I think even right now, you know, the decisions that need to be made for 2024, 2025, 2026, like who is in charge of those in Houston, and do we trust that they are actually, like, making the right or the smartest choices there as opposed to – you know, the guy that who would ostensibly be hired to do this stuff as opposed to Jim Crane and his Hall of Fame buddies. For sure. John Taylor, what yes. can the good folks check out from you over on uh, Fangraphs.com? Well, uh, this being mid- early to mid-January, this is the baseball dead period when mm-hmm. really most of the stuff we're doing right now is just like we're covering every signing. So we did our third Carlos Correa write-up today. thought that was very fun. <laughs> ben Clemens did all three of them, uh, which I'm sure is... One of the weirder experiences any writer has had this this offseason. But we're going to keep going with our Zips projections from Dan Zimbarski for 2023. I have a few of those uh, still left. I think about less than a dozen, I think, at this point. We're almost done with those. Uh, the Yankees will be the next team up. They'll be out on Wednesday morning at some point during the day. Uh, Jay Jaffe is wrapping up his Jaws uh, Hall of Fame profiles with his one-and-done guys, the guys who are on the ballot but have... Uh, either will not receive a vote or basically will, will not, you know, they'll they'll be on this ballot and then no more because they're going to fail to meet the 5% minimum uh, vote requirement for staying on the ballot. That has been a nice compendium of guys so far. Today's entry was J.J. Hardy. Uh, the we the entries before that we had, uh, who did we have before J.J. Hardy? We had Johnny Peralta, a huge guy right there. <laughs> there let's uh, name some dudes. Yeah, we're naming dudes right now. And, like, uh, tomorrow we're going to have Matt Cain, who is probably too good to be a guy, but, you know, still very uh, a very good player to be remembered. So Jay is just going through those guys on the ballot and giving them their little time to shine in the sun. Uh, if you haven't, by the way, if you haven't seen his ballot, which came out uh, right around the end, of the, the end of the year, I believe, on the 29th, go check that out. Jay is uh, a registered hall of fame voter he put about he he shared his ballot with all of us uh otherwise we'll just be oh and our top prospect series will continue uh as eric longenhagen keeps filing reports from instructionals and from all the looks he's seen so keep an eye out for those coming through the rest of the offseason otherwise we'll just be here at this point getting ready for really the last bit of major scheduled news which is the hall of fame announcement coming in about two weeks otherwise uh join us in somewhat hibernation as we keep an eye on things but otherwise you know just get ourselves ready for the coming season we're, we're like carlos correa we're just bouncing from place to place we don't know what we're going to be doing yet but we're, we're going to make it happen only a month out only a month out we're only a month out from pitchers and catchers yeah it's insane so that's and that's the thing like before you know it spring training is here and we're going to start uh rolling through season preview stuff we're going to start rolling through some uh our obviously our top our prospect stuff that's coming in late february with our top 100 which is always a big one but yeah fangraphs.com go come over join us member join join a member become a member do it do it today and we'll end here don't sign trevor 
Bauer. You don't have to. Oh my don't god! Don't do I, it. Yeah, that I, I'm. I'm glad that the this the, like there's no discussion. That there's there's no, no discussion. Don't, don't, don't just don't Trevor. do it. There's there's no Trevor Bauer is an awful human being, an awful, despicable, miserable human being who should not be employed by a major league baseball team. There's just there's, just don't sign him. Yeah, that's please, all we gotta do. Please, please, don't sign him. God, I don't want that to happen. Oh my god. John Taylor. Yes. Always a pleasure, my friend. Yes. And I miss talking to you. And I'm yeah. glad we're back. And yeah. uh, I will talk to year. you. Happy in the new year. In the new year. Happy New Year, John Taylor. And I will you talk too, to man. you next week. Sounds good. This has been Ingram, radio voice of the Atlanta Braves. And I'm here to tell you that you've reached the end of today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. As a friend of the podcast, I'd like to say thank you for listening to today's episode and hope you return for the next one. To show your support for the program, tell a friend or coworker or even a family member about the program. And if you're an Apple Podcast listener, leave the show a rating and a review. It goes a long way. That'll do it for me. But don't forget to listen to myself and the rest of the team at 680 The Fan and the Braves Radio Network this season. Go Braves! Chase, I think I'm going to hear more about you. I really do. I think you've got a way about you, but you're interviewing. Mm-hmm. You're, um, pleasantness you're smart so i think i'm going to hear big things about you nicely done nephew chase thomas podcast hell yeah